0: I need to know everything, who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop to the a Porsche, five on a horse, i ready for war, I'm coming for throws, turn to turn ghost, I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the... Hello and welcome to JK Plus One, I am your host, Jonathan Kinch, and I am not back with you from the Brooklyn Bunker, and uh, I'm not PTF, but I got some good news to report, PTF has been... Uh, a lot more uh, accommodating, uh, a lot more uh, compassionate, significantly, uh, really can't think of a better word. He's been he's been much sweeter. Uh, uh, the PTF that really, you know, I fell in love with and likely that you fell in love with as well. So uh, I appreciate everyone who sent him messages uh, to try to encourage him to change his behavior. Um, look, it's a tough time we're all going through, but the way Pete was handling it just was out of character for him, and and so I'm, I'm glad that he's come to his senses and realized that that uh, I'm someone who's very important to him, and he needs to uh he needs to treat me that way. So uh, I appreciate your support there. um I'm, I'm kidding. I can't believe people thought I was serious. I mean, he was being a little bit sour, but <laughs> I think he was just having a bad day that day. Um, anyway. Um, man i I want to start by saying thanks for everybody who's who's listened to the first three episodes um obviously uh, we started with gary stevens uh it was great with some great stories from a hall of famer who's who's uh seen so much and uh michael mccarthy uh, a week after cc telling stories of of his time with uh with todd pletcher and and uh, not in a typical way but telling good stories about rags to riches and practical jokes on angel cordero and then obviously last week with Duke Matisse, uh, letting people into the world of a professional horse player that's done it at a high level for 24 years. And, um, uh, man, these, these shows have been received extremely well and I'm, I'm very grateful and I appreciate it, but more, more so, uh, to the guests, you know, one of the things when I'm putting these into the program to edit and get it out or whatever, uh, I'm very happy that the, the uh, the guests waveform, the, the guests, uh, audio is significantly more than mine. And that's the design of it, right? It's, you guys don't need to hear anything from me. My experiences are limited in this game compared to, to the people that I've had on the show so far. And really what I want is for you guys to, to get to know them better uh, in a way that, that I know them and some behind the scenes and the stories. I, I think that's what makes racing so fun is, is the stories. And, um, and so I want to, I want to do my best to, to try to get that information to you. Obviously it'll get interesting when I start having guests that I have no relationship with people that I don't know. Um, and so I, I'm going to stick to my comfort zone for now with people that I know, people that uh, I can get those good conversations out of. So I also uh, have done a nice little trick where I, I reach out to people to get some information about uh, some clues, the questions, and stuff like that. So uh, this week, uh, the son of our of our guest was extremely helpful, and so I, I want to say a, a thank you to Joe Migliori. Um, so obviously, that kind of gave away who who we're going to have on today. It's a a, a champion rider. Um, a writer that is just so well respected by, by New Yorkers, but race fans across the world. Um, He's a a man that I've had an opportunity of uh, recently of becoming not only friends with, but colleagues with, and it's uh, it's, it's been phenomenal. It's been a great experience for me to be able to, to, to uh, have Richie in my life. Um, So kind to to me and to my son, Uh, the times we would see him at Saratoga Austin loves the MIG. And, and so, uh, I was I was very very pleased to have him on here, and if you've never had a chance to talk to Richie, he is one of the greatest storytellers of all time. His memory is 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 crazy about the stuff and the details that he remembers, and the stories that you'll get for the next two hours are are, uh, are nothing less than than brilliant. And I and I hope you guys enjoy it. And so enough of me carrying on. Let's bring in our guest, Richard Migliori. Mike, I got to tell you, I miss you, man. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I can see you pretty soon up at, uh, up at Saratoga.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I hope they use me. I mean, they were using me before this whole, um, you know, quarantine and everything, and I, I felt really good about my work. But you know, then everything kind of fell apart, and I, I just hope that I'm still in their plans.
0: You know, it's funny. You, you, you actually mentioned that. that was one of the things I wanted to start with. And, um, man, I got to be honest with you. Like when I started doing TV, I, it, I realized that uh, the the thing that kind of keeps you afloat when you're going, that makes you kind of seem comfortable up there is vocabulary. When you can find a word that you need to express yourself, it keeps you from stumbling or stammering or, or, or whatever it might be. And, and I didn't always take school like that serious. And so there's sometimes in my life where like, I haven't felt, you know, sometimes my vocabulary hasn't been the best. So then I start kind of dodging and I'll change my word just to make it where I don't get slippery. But I got to be honest with you. And and this isn't meant to be an insult at all, but for someone who who was on the racetrack at a very young age and 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 you know never went to college, I I cannot tell you how impressive it is how good you are on TV. It 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 shocks me every single time uh, I see it because it's it, it's not like you're professionally trained in television. You just get up there and talk, and it's smooth. And uh, I I just I mean I really admire it. Well,
1: well, thank you. I appreciate you saying that. You know, I I've always been a, a voracious reader i love to read and i only finished the eighth grade that's as far as i went in school i didn't even get a high school diploma um but you know when you're dealing with so many people um and all different walks of life i mean literally having dined with kings and and you know titans of industry and, as well as in the track kitchen with you know grooms and exercise riders you, you feel like you can transcend all of that and you know at least hold your own and be comfortable And you know yourself, too. The other thing with TV is you usually have, like, so much in your mind you want to get out. But – and I think that also leads to a little bit of the stuttering and the stammering because you've got so much going on in your head. I always prioritize, like, if I have one main thing I want to say – I'm going to make sure that's the, the thing I accentuate. And then if there's time or there's segues that lead you into the ancillary things, then you can, you know, kind of expand on things. But this way, it kind of clarifies that you've got a clear path, you know?
0: No, absolutely. I, I think that's the thing that, that I had to get the most used to, man. It's like, is, well, the, first of all, them talking in your ear was the biggest distraction at first. I just, I just wasn't used to that. Um, and, and I'm just amazed at the traffic that Lafitte and Greg get in their ear. I mean, we get a little bit, but they're just like, someone's constantly in their ear. Um, right before they go to commercial, I don't know if people know this, but they count them down while they're doing their, their kind of their, uh, uh, their rollouts or whatever, you know, they'll say coming up next uh, you know, it's Rachel Alexandra, the greatest, but whatever they're doing, someone's counting in their ear. It's so distracting. I don't, I don't know how they do it, but uh, it, it had to take me some time to get used to, for sure.
1: Well, you know, I was fortunate in one respect. Um, when I first started doing television first for HR TV and then for the New York Racing Association, um, I was doing the dark day simulcast shows. Um, so like, you know, we had doula park and finger lakes and parks and, you know, the, the parks might've been like our marquee track for the day. Mitch Levitas was the director and he was in my ear constantly and I hosted the show. Ernie Munich was my, my, uh, handicapper. I was the host of the show. And Mitch would never stop talking. It was like broadcasting boot camp. I'd be going, well, it's official at parks and the winner paid. And he'd be telling me a dirty joke in my ear while I'm talking. So I kind of was baptized by fire. Like I learned to be able to block out as much as I had to, but still pick up what I needed. Um, And and it actually turned out to be a great learning experience.
0: Mitch telling you a dirty joke. I, I I don't believe that. <laughs> he he gets in my ear all the time. It's so distracting. He'll go, he'll, I'll come on, he'll go, you're on camera. He, and then he'll say, Oh man, you're handsome or something. I'm just like, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, back to the, to the point and, and look, I, part of my podcast, I mean, I told you this is I, I try to, I try to do it a little bit differently than uh majority of the interviews and conversations you've had. I, 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 at no point in this conversation am I going to ask you who the best horse you ever rode was. Um, it just It's just that you've done that before, and I, I want to let people get to know Richie a little bit better. So, But I think we have to start because it's an interesting start. I've always been um, super interested in the fact that we see these NBA players and NFL players that go professional at a young age, and they do a lot of really dumb things when they're 18, 19, 20, 21 years old when they start getting a lot of money. But jockeys it, it actually happens earlier. Um, you know when when did you start making money? Um, you know when did you start riding uh, how old were you when you started riding uh, uh, riding and then and, you know how did all how did you handle all of that?
1: Well, you know, it was kind of interesting. I I came up on the racetrack pretty old school. Uh, I was one of the last high profile riders to come up under a contract. Um, and actually signed the contract when I was 15 years old um, and made a hundred dollars a week starting out. Ninety one dollars is what I cleared after taxes. Um, I lived a- at barn 46 at Belmont. There's um, it, ironically enough that Steve Demorrow was my boss. That became John Kimball's barn when Mr. DeMauro retired. And he took over Mr. DeMauro's office. And my room was like just across from it in the same building. Um, there was a wall separating obviously and his assistant trainer, Loretta Lustig, who's been a dear friend of mine and my wife's for years. Her office was my room on the track. And I lived there for two and a half years on the backstretch at Belmont from the time I was 14. to the time I was 16 and a half. And when I was 16, I, you know, I started riding, um, and fortunately had a, a great deal of success right away. And the first apartment I ever, uh, got, I was 16, um, with Steve DeMorrow Jr., who is now the, Gulf, um, the steward at Gulfstream Park. Um, and it was directly beyond the 3 h pole at Belmont. You could see it. It's on the other side of the Cross Island Parkway, but you could see the building behind the 3 h pole. And that was where my first apartment was. Um, but I actually really enjoyed living on the track. Um, you know, the barn was like a family. Uh, a lot of us ate together and, uh, you know, worked together. And it, I have still. Some of my best friends are from that period of time. Some of the grooms uh, are are still my best friends. And we had a day watch lady at the time. When you go to the jockey's room for the first time, you have to, you know, bring your socks and underwear and stuff that you're going to leave in the room. So she told me to go buy buy six pairs of everything. And then she embroidered my initials in all of them because she knew that, you know, it gets into a community uh, laundry you know, they got to be able to distinguish who's who's. And and that's how kind and thoughtful everybody was in our barn and the racetrack at the time. It was just like a big family.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Uh, now, I think I remember you telling me that it's, something happened with that first apartment. Like you had like a real scary night there when, you, when you, you were 15, 16 years old when you moved into your apartment. What, do you remember what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we, uh, we moved into the apartment, and at the same time, uh, Stephen was kind of back and forth between Monmouth and Belmont because he had a, a division of horses down there, and then he had met a girl um, who lived in Philadelphia, and so he was dating her. So he wasn't there a lot, and I still didn't even have a driver's license. Um, I, I was, you know, had a jockey's license, but not a driver's license. And one night I'm in the apartment by myself, and there's loud, you know, banging and stuff upstairs, and all of a sudden gunshots in the apartment right above me. And it was a a guy was selling drugs in the apartment above me, and it was a, a drug bust, and there was a shootout, and I mean, I was horrified. I was under the bed, scared to death. You know, think about that scene in Big when Tom Hanks got to go to the city for the first time, and he's still really just a little kid, and, and he, you know, he's scared, and he's in that little room that he rented. That was me in the apartment, and I literally moved back to the track the next day because I said I felt safer at the track than I did in that apartment building.
0: <laughs> so now. How quickly after that was the first trip to Japan? And how old were you when you went to Japan the first
1: time? I I was 16 when I went to the first Japan Cup um, to ride the very one. And it was kind of interesting because we had two mares. Um, My boss did uh, the very one who went to Japan and I rode her. And another mare called Euphrosine. And I had just gotten done winning the um, Long Island Handicap on Euphrosine. And he called me in the office because every day before I could go to the jockey's room, I have to go in his office and we talk about all the horses and the horses I worked and kind of, you know, give my opinion on where I thought they might be best suited to run longer, shorter, that kind of thing. And he asked me who we should take. Should we take you for a scene or the very one? And I was adamant that we should take you for a scene. Um, I just thought she was in better form at the time. She was like a ballet dancer to ride. She, she could get in a spot and idle and then get herself out of a spot and jump heel. She, she was uh, you know, really, really handy and small and light on her feet. And the very one was a fullback. She just put her head down almost to the ground and ran forward and would run through a brick wall. Think um, Larry Sanka, as opposed to as a Jim kick, right? The, the old Miami dolphins, it, 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 one was a halfback and all finesse and the other was just run through a brick wall. And we wound up taking uh, the very one, and she just was so hard to ride. It was a big field, and we had some trouble, got beat about two and a half lengths. Don't know if we would have won anyway. I was trying to ride the best turf race possible, shave ground. You got to remember, too, this was the first Japan Cup. The Japanese horses and Japanese riders weren't as good as they have become. I mean, now they're world class. They can win on any stage. But that was when they were trying to build into that. And the pace of the race was ridiculously fast, 45 and change, 109. And when they started stopping, going a mile and a half, there were a lot of traffic jams, and I was inside. And I did get hampered. I wound up getting through. Um, but by then, Mersey Oats had circled and with Cassius Musson and opened up. So I finished third. And the ironic thing is, you foreseen had beaten Mersey Oats handily in the Long Island a month earlier. So I'm, I'm convinced to this day, just because of her ability to help a rider get in, in and out of trouble in that kind of field. And the fact that she had beaten Mary's, if we had taken you for a scene, I'm convinced we would have won the first Japan
0: cup. So were you, were you nervous going, I mean, I, if I went to Japan, well, obviously not today, but if I went to Japan as a, you know, as a 37 year old by myself for the first time, I would have my head on the swivel. Like, what, what are we doing? What's going on here? I mean, how did you handle that going by yourself or were you not technically by yourself?
1: Well, you know, I, I was by myself, um, but interestingly enough, Cassius Muson was riding in New York then. That was before he left to Europe. And I got on the plane, and it was a bit overwhelming. This is the second time I'd ever been on a plane in my life. I had, I had You know, my second flight, I'm going international. I'm going to Japan. I've never been on a plane other than one other time. And it was a bit overwhelming. But I have to say that um, Cash's mom, Mrs. Esmussen, she actually, I think, recognized, you know, this is a 16-year-old kid. Me and her son were friends. Um, and she kind of ponied me. Like, like whatever they were doing, she included me. Uh, I wound up sitting with them on the flight. Um, and and really, it, it was such a kind of quiet act of kindness, the way she recognized that, hey, this kid, you know, needs somebody to kind of help guide him. And, and, and to this day, I, I'm very grateful for that.
0: So obviously when you were, you know, 16, 17, you were making more money than 16 and 17 year olds were. Did you, did you have a, did you have a little run where you were buying a bunch of dumb things? Did you, did you buy a nice car pretty quick? What would you do? Uh, what was your big mistake financially when you were uh, a teenager?
1: No, I, honestly, that, that wasn't me. Like I was never a car guy. Um, I, I really enjoyed just being in the barn, being with the horses and now, obviously, you know, making money is great. And you're, you know, I don't think I really understood the enormity of it in those moments back then. I mean, later on, you know, when you get a family, you realize for your security and the things you want, uh, obviously money is very important. But when I set out to be a jockey, Jonathan, I never, ever thought about money. I, it really was like the furthest thing from my mind. I just wanted to be around the horses and and so much so that literally if someone would have handed me a contract when I was, you know, kid, and said, "Listen, you're going to be around horses the rest of your life. Not be a jockey, not be successful, not about money. Just, just be around them. Hell, be a groom." I would have signed the contract right then. So the fact that I've actually got to spend my life with horses, and also have been, have been able to enjoy the success that I had, I, I mean, I'm way ahead of the game. So, I, I, I mean, I know it's kind of a boring answer, but I really, I, I never really went crazy like that.
0: Where'd you fall? In, where did you fall in love? I mean, growing up. Uh, you know, I mean, you spent a lot of time in Brooklyn as a kid, right? So um, growing up, where where did you, how do you fall, how does a kid from, from the city fall in love with horses? Well,
1: you know, I, I was always crazy about animals, and, and I really liked animals, and I would go to the public library, and I'd take books out about horses, and I started reading the Black Stallion books, Walter Farley, and um, so I, I played Little League off of McDonald Avenue in Brooklyn, Little League Baseball, Gil Hodges Little League, and my Little League coach, there used to be an amusement park um, called Nelly Bly right off the Belt Parkway uh, between Coney Island and the Verrazano Bridge. And my Little League coach owned the pony ride concession there. And he, I started working for him when I was like nine years old, taking care of ponies. And, you know, then you would get to ride them because they're a little beach down there. So I, I got very comfortable with horses or ponies at least, but I kind of felt like I knew my way around. And when I wound up going, you know, on Long Island, some of the the farms there was farm a lot more farmland back then, weren't far from my house. So I'd ride my bicycle every day and found this place, Hunting Hollow Farm in Dix Hills, and I would show up. No one would even talk to me. You know, I was a little kid, I was like twelve, thirteen, and I'm watching people work with horses. And after about a week, the guy who owned the place said to me, "Hey, you're you're around here every day. You want a job?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd love it. You know anything about horses? Oh, sure, I know about horses. You know." And he gave me a job mucking stalls, and I got a dollar for every stall I mucked out. And at the end of the week, I could either take the money or apply the money to riding lessons. So I never took the money, and I got, you know, real riding lessons um, where I, I got more of a foundation. I had already been riding, but I didn't know what I was doing. And right after that, I fell into a couple of kids. Um, they had pony ride, uh, a pony ride business, and they started doing pony races. So I started riding these pony races. And one day a lady sees me, and I had won the pony race. And I was so little, Jonathan, at that time, like I really was tiny. Um, I would have to run the ponies up this hill to pull them up. I couldn't pull them up. And um, the lady saw me, and she said, you know, you could be a jockey. And I'd already had it on my mind. That's kind of like the plan in my head. And she gave me the number to a guy who had a farm with a racetrack uh, further out east. And I, I called the guy up. I don't know where I got my nerve. And uh, he's like, well, have you ever galloped a racehorse? So, oh, yes, sir. I've been on racehorses. i never been on a racehorse. You know? But I could see the way the jockeys took across and held their hands. Like I could see it like a video in my mind. So I went out there on a Saturday morning, uh, galloped a horse for him. The school was letting out in a few weeks. And he said, well, I like what I see. You want to spend the summer here. So I wound up spending the summer at the farm. They had rooms above the barn. And, uh that's really how it got started Lakeview Farms a man named Bill George gave me an opportunity to gallop resources
0: at that point uh did you did you feel like I mean did you have some talent at that point or did it, did it did it not really show until you until you uh, until you got a little bit further along or, or did did you know were people telling you man you, you could actually make a career out of this once you actually got on their backs or or was it uh, something you kind of had to develop
1: no, I had to work at it. I had to develop it. There were there were a couple of kids at the farm, and and I was probably, uh, you know, out of the four, the fourth pick, maybe the third pick. But um, you know, the, one kid went off to the track before me. He was a little bit older than me too, and um, everybody said he's the star. He's the one. He's the one. And and. Um, it just didn't work out for him. You know, it's 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 tough. And there's there's so many other factors. It's not just ability. There's a lot of things that go in to what makes a successful rider. The one thing that I did have very naturally was I always had really good hands on a horse. And I know that sounds probably cocky the way I just said it, but I always could get along with tougher horses and, and just kind of they would fall into my hands and I could feel them. And I think part of it was because I was so small that um, I knew I couldn't out-muscle them. So I kind of had to just get them to cooperate with me and um but by the time i got steve tomorrow and was breezing horses I, I think everybody had a pretty good idea that you know i, I was at least going to make it as a rider you know
0: now uh i guess there's a uh i i always I, I always grab somebody and get some information before i do these so i can have some uh some good stories to to, to probe you on uh joe told me a story your son joe tell me a story about, uh, riding ponies on the track with uncle Nick.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my brother was a state, he's retired. Now was a state trooper and he had come to Saratoga. Um, and he's bigger than me, much bigger than me. And, um, although I did grow later and, and as I've said before, I was the center on the jockey basketball team, but, um, my, so my brother, Nicky comes out in the morning with me and I was like, come on, I'll get you on a, you know, one of the lead horses, one of the lead stable ponies and we'll go hack around the backstretch at Belmont. So I got one from uh, Mark Cassie and I forget whoever's other horse. It was, and me and my brother are riding around and I'm just kind of telling him how to hold the reins and sit the horse and keep his heels down. And he was doing pretty good. So it was very late in the morning. And we went to Claire court back, you know, a little track back there. And I said, come on, let's trot around here. You know, and he was doing good. And I said, all right, let's pick up a, a canter. You know." And I, I kind of gigged my horse and picked up a canter. And my, my brother you know, clucked to his. That thing took off. And I'm yelling at him, pull, pull hard, because my brother's getting run off with by this lead horse. <laughs> and I had to spur my horse on, catch him by the saddle tail, kind of reel him in, reel him in, get a hold of him, pull both of us up. And my brother got up, I'll never get on the horse again. I can't believe you—you you guys can do that. I'm—I'm I'm so much bigger than you. I couldn't stop this thing. And. I took the horse back to the barn and I told Mark what happened, Mark Cassie. And he said, oh, my God, I would have told you never go on the track with that horse. He's a runoff. we got to put an overcheck on him. (laughs) Someone's got my brother killed.
0: (laughs) um, You you know, that that reminds me of, of, uh, you know, one thing that I think people would pay a lot of money for if it was an available thing, which is to ride around on a golf cart at Saratoga uh, with Richie Magliori because your memory and the stories that you have about, uh, about Saratoga and about your time there. It's, I mean, it's priceless. Just every barn, there's a story, every track, there's a story, every, every, uh, every pole on the racetrack, there's a story. I mean, you, you spent a lot of summers there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, got
1: there the first summer I ever was there was, I was 14 years old and, um, I love the history of the game. I really love, you know, it, it, almost that romantic side of it. And, um, the barn we were in at, at Saratoga had been meadow stables barn. So I knew which stall was secretary. It's, um, I lived in one of those little, um, brick cubicles backed up to the Yaddo. Um, used to jump the fence and go fishing back in the Yaddo. What people don't know, even though it's not legal, those ponds are stocked with trout. So you put a little corn on a hook, I'm pulling trout up. We're having trout for dinner. Um, so, you know, Saratoga is that, that magical place where you can feel that sense of history. Now, the actual first meeting was held across the street, not at the Oklahoma track, but that racetrack that runs throughout the barn area that's no longer in use. But when I was a kid, you would gallop horses on that, and that's a mile long. The straightaways are – no, it's actually more, even more than that, but the straightaways like a half a mile, and the turns are like an eighth of a mile. And my boss used to blow horses out on there. I breezed horses on that. I don't know how I never wound up in the woods down by where the parking lots are because you'd be going, I weigh 95 pounds at the time. You're going 100 miles an hour straight away, and you get a hairpin turn. And every time we blew a horse out on that track, because they would do it so the clockers couldn't catch you, they would win. Anytime we breezed a horse on that track, they won. It was money in the bank.
0: That's unbelievable. Did you, uh, you know, obviously – in your career. And I asked Gary Stevens the same question. How, how, what was your relationship like with the better? And I don't mean like, you know, giving them information and things like that. I mean, what was your relationship like as a young kid and and growing up throughout your career? Did you get along with the better? Did the better drive you crazy when they were yelling at you and, 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 you know, the rail birds, how did you handle uh, the better throughout your career? Uh, You know, it's, it's
1: a mixed bag. I mean, I, I feel like, I, I was really, really loved and appreciated in New York because I was a New York kid. Um, I remember going to the races as a kid with my father and, and then with kids from the neighborhood, taking the subway out, um, going to the bar on Coney Island Avenue. I couldn't go in. My father would be making his bets in the back. Um, so I understood how important it was, you know, for the $2 better um, to get a, an effort. You, you know, like the worst thing you could have been in my neighborhood was a mutt. And Amart was a guy who just, you know, didn't try. Like, it wasn't a big deal to them. Um, so I was always going to put forth my best effort. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to ride a bad race and you're going to get it from somebody. Um, and you also got to remember, you're probably, you know, at the height of my career, riding almost every race every day. I'm pulling weight every day. I'm fighting physical injuries. And so your your patience for it is is probably a little frayed, um, but I always, always was very aware of the fact that, you know, I, I had a try for every placing. It was important to be third. That might've rounded out some guys try who needed to pay his rent, you, you know? And, um, so I, I think being aware of that and as hard as I rode kind of kept me in the good graces of, of the people. Now that's not to say I didn't have incidents. I mean, one day, one guy was riding me all day at Belmont and, um, after the last race, he, he got personal. Um, he went someplace he shouldn't have went about my upbringing, my, you know, being a kid in Brooklyn guy probably was from my old neighborhood. And I went over the fence after him, um, uh, caught him by, the, they used to have a Sparrows pizza stand. And I caught him by the back of his collar by the Sparrows pizza stand. Cause he took off running and he ran right out of his shirt. I was standing there with a shirt in my hand and I was so tight and and just kind of had lost my mind at that point that i went down to the jocks room and i didn't even shower and i put my street clothes on went out looking for him i figured how many guys are going to be in the parking lot with no shirt you know it's got to be him right <laughs> and i never did find them eddie maple was trying to calm me down who was always you know kind of a mentor to me we were always our lockers were side by side and i was having none of it and you know you wish you had a do-over you know you wish you wouldn't blow it like that but um you, you know it's interesting because we can we can equate this to TV as well. It's fine to criticize. I criticize rides. Um, I tend to criticize more when it's obvious to me, a a guy didn't prepare well, you know, you know, preparation is huge. And and I think it's easy to be exposed. If you don't prepare properly, same thing doing TV, you're exposed if you don't prepare properly. Um, And I'll criticize, but I always make it a point. If I'm tough on a guy or critical, I make myself available by the next day. I'll go to the jockey's room. I won't maybe go directly to them and say, Hey, I said this, but usually by the next day, somebody, a friend, a relative has said, wow, you know, MIG was tough on you or whatever. And I make myself available. If you want to talk about it, let's talk about it and and I'll either help you or we can agree to disagree. But I think the worst thing you can do as a broadcaster and, and it's irresponsible is to ignore it or avoid it because then it festers and I'd rather have somebody come out with it, get it out in the open. Let's talk about it. And there was an incident last summer, uh, Eric Cancel rode a horse and the horse won. And I, I thought it was a teachable moment. Um, the horse was a speed horse and as soon as he went to the lead, he grabbed him and slow him down as hard as you possibly can. And that's not the way to ride a speed horse. Um, you're, you're taking his natural weapon away by allowing horses in the race. And I'm not saying send them, but let them hit that natural stride. Let them hit their cruising speed. And the horse wound up winning, but he was getting out and um, was on air with actually with Greg Wolfe. And he said, oh, you know, great ride, but Eric can't sound. I said, well, no, this is one of those cases where the horse overcame the ride. And I explained it. Well, the next day, Eric was upset. So I went down to the jockey's room, and, you know, he, he definitely had an attitude. And I was like, well, listen. You can either you have two choices. You could be mad at me, or you can come to the replay center with me and maybe learn something. And to his credit, he let it go. We went to the replay center. We watched replays. We watched the horses previous race before he rode him and how he didn't get out and how he won much more comfortably when he rode him and the difference. And he wound up thanking me and I think he started riding those kind of horses a bit better because he stopped being defensive. It's easy to be defensive. It, it, it's it's hard to look at yourself in the mirror and go, "Man, I messed that up." But that's the only way you learn from it.
0: No, and it's funny you bring up Eric because I, you know, I have a uh, I have a relationship with Eric to a certain extent because of of Angel Cordero. My relationship with Angel, obviously, Eric's very close with Angel, and then uh, his agent this summer, Ruben Munoz. Well, I, I'm friendly with him as well, and so uh, and I like Eric as as a person, so I want him to do well. Oh, and, terrific kid! Uh, yeah, he's he's great. a great kid. And what, one of the things that I noticed and that I noticed a lot of times with riders is, well, there's a lot of things I noticed, but one thing I notice is, is that guys like Eric, they can't afford to make the best decisions that they think they need to be making in a race. Because if it's not the decision that the trainer or owner like that, and if they don't win, they're going to get taken off. So In a situation like that, where that horse breaks on top, in Eric's head, I guarantee he said to himself, man, I got to walk this dog. If I go too fast and I get beat, I'm going to get in trouble. And I just feel like when you're a guy, you're not Irad, you're not Jose, you're not Johnny, you're not Javier, you're not Joel, I feel like it's so much harder to ride because the pressure is that much more. Irad can go out there and butcher a Chad Brown horse, and he's still going to ride the grade one tomorrow. But if Eric Cancel gets it's a shot great point. and butchers a Chad Brown horse, he'll never touch, he'll never work another Chad Brown horse. And I think riding under that pressure and just like betting, if you're betting not to lose, it's so much harder. But if you pop, you hit the early pick five and then you bet the late pick four, the late pick four is going to be the best ticket you've ever constructed because you're playing with confidence and you're playing with their money. Man, Eric's never playing with their money. And I feel like it shows from time to time on the racetrack and it makes him make decisions, not just him. I'm, I'm not picking on him. They, you know, all of them, uh, that aren't, no, aren't no. those top guys.
1: Right. That, that they haven't hit that upper tier yet. They're not Mike Smith yet. Or, or like you said, Irad, or, or Jose, or, you know, whoever it may be. It's a great point And it's really insightful that you could see that. And like, I know myself when I was riding, if I was riding well, I never thought, about anybody when it, when there was the moment that you could seize a race or you could do something. I just did it when I wasn't riding as well, or I was flat out riding bad. It was because uh, if I do that and the source gets beat, people are going to be mad at me. And, and they haven't hit that level where they're free of that criticism. And I, you know, I, I had this conversation with somebody the other day and they brought up a fleet Alex and they said something about the ride Jeremy Rose gave in the Kentucky Derby. And I said, you know what? Jeremy Rose gave that horse a terrific ride in the Kentucky Derby, in my estimation. He was beaten a length, he finished third. Where he lost the Kentucky Derby was in the Arkansas Derby. Now, he rode the horse in his first six or seven starts. They took him off to the Rebel, the prep for the Arkansas Derby. One of the higher profile rider. they went with Johnny Velasquez. Hall of Famer, right? you totally understand the, their their thought process. Horse ran the worst race of his life, came out of it with a bronchial infection. He's off a month, Jeremy gets the mount back in the Arkansas Derby, he turns for home with two fistfuls of horse, and he rode him like his life depended on him. And he whipped him every stride from the eighth pole of the wire, he wins by eight lengths, coming off a bit of an illness, and I think that sapped him a little bit for the Kentucky Derby. And then he goes on and wins the Preakness and the Belmont. And the reason he rode him that way is because he was a part of the team. They put in a different quarterback, right? They took the team away from him. Now he gets it back. He doesn't know if this is the last time he's ever going to sit on this horse. So Arkansas Derby Day to him was Kentucky Derby Day. And And I'm not blaming the connections. I'm just saying, just facts. If you don't feel confident that you're a part of that team, you're going to tend to do things that um, like that override a horse or, uh, you know, eh, maybe not let him open up three when that was the move to do, because you don't feel like you you feel like you're replaceable, I guess is the point. I believe in my heart that if Jeremy Rose had ridden the horse in the rebel, he ran poorly that day. he, He was going to run poorly with anybody. But he knew it was his horse. That horse would have
0: won the Triple Crown. that That's my belief. Well, I mean, it, it, look, it makes total sense, you know, and you see it all the time. And, um, you know, there was a situation, you know, majority of the summer, and not to pick on Eric, but I'm just giving another example, is of of the rail was not where you wanted to be majority of the, of the summer. And Eric... Found himself down there a few times, and I and I had talked to Ruben, and I was like, Ruben, you got to tell him to stay off the rail. You got to tell him to stay off the rail. And Ruben brought up a great point to me, and he's like, Look, you're probably right, and but there's if the trainer doesn't know that, and Eric goes four wide and loses, he'll never ride for him again. And I mean, what kind yeah. of what kind of what kind of horrible spot is that to be in, where you can't do what you need to do, to do what's best for you, your career, your family, and the horse? Because if you don't do what they want you to do then you're you're going to get taken off i mean i that I would hate to operate in in under those circumstances
1: very yeah, very, very tough circumstances and and totally understand it you know what you're saying is hundred percent correct now, like he winds up well, I have to save ground because it looks bad if I'm white, but then you get riders that wind up on the wrong part of the track because it's the path of least resistance. They're not having to fight for that position. And that's something like I'm able to discern and I'll call a guy out for that. Like, okay, you wound up four wide because everybody's jamming for the fence. So you wound up on the fence because everybody's trying to be in the three, four path. If you're always in the place where everybody else isn't, it's probably not the place to be.
0: You know, and obviously, you know, dirt racing is, is, uh, the rails have been a little bit tricky, but turf racing, that that's never changed. That's where you want to be. What, which one of the of the two uh, turf courses at Saratoga did you prefer riding? And, and what was the reason you preferred riding that turf course over the, over the other?
1: Well, I would definitely have to say the, the outer turf course, the, the inner turf course, man, that first turn could be so rough. You're jamming in there and you've got to get your position going forward. And you, you know, especially early in the meet when everybody's a little bit more amped up at Saratoga, you're playing to a full house as opposed to Belmont where it's, you know, pretty sedate most days. Um, and no one's given any quarter and you got you know six horses on top of each other into that first turn and horses don't corner completely straight, you know, on, on that tight first turn anyway. Um, so it could be kind of hairy at times. Uh, you know, definitely the out of turf course to me, uh, I, I always felt good about, um, that and again, too, it depends on the horses, the kind of horse you're riding, a nimble horse, a handy horse, a horse who helps you get in and out of trouble. You, you know, you know, we talk about riders and criticism, and I, I again, I rode great races and finished third or fourth and was criticized, rode terrible races and won because the horse bailed me out. And the third or fourth, as good as I rode, couldn't you have done this? Why didn't you do that? And the race I rode bad and won, what a great ride. So we're so result-oriented that, you know, sometimes you got to look past just the result. Um, And and you talk about that even in your handicapping. It's not – always just about the result it, it, it's you got you got it there's more it's more nuanced than that i guess i'm trying to say
0: right now i think hindsight is the biggest enemy of the horse player and i would say that even probably about uh, about a rider as well you know i mean obviously you can learn from hindsight you can uh, if you, if the same thing keeps coming up in, in hindsight then yeah maybe you need to reevaluate the process but you know if if you if you simply continue to make adjustments on what it is that you know is the right way to do things based on the result and hindsight man you're just going to you're going to continue being good bad hot cold good bad hot cold you know i just so you know believe in your process and and and, and try to stick with it it's what I, you know at least it's what i tried to do
1: well you know but it's just so hard like i i mean I, i'll tell you a quick story one day at, at aqueduct i won four won the stake you know had a good day rode good all day and the last race a ten thousand dollar claimer. I'm I'm like fourth on the fence. I got a lot of horse coming to the five sixteenths pole. And uh, there was somebody in front that was starting the weekend, and then Angel Cordero was outside of him and Georgie Velasquez was outside of him, and I'm sliding up in behind them. Jockey one oh one, especially in that era don't try to go inside of that guy that's weakening because he doesn't have control of the situation. The guys outside of him have control of the situation and they used to guard the rail fiercely. And I had so much force. And and in hindsight, I think I was thinking so much anticipating so much about winning my fifth race of the day, my fifth win of the day that I went up in a spot. I knew I shouldn't have tried to, you know, blow through there. Angel saw him come and push the other guy over on top of me. I bounced off the fence you know, drop back five lengths, come fly and finish second. So if I'm just patient, I win. So drive home, I was newly married, you know, this was in the 80s, and I, I, my wife was like, great day, you won the steak, you won four, and I was upset. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. In my mind, I was exposed in the last race. See, I'm not a good rider. The others, I, I was fooling everybody. This one, I, I know I, it was all me. I blew it. And about three o'clock in the morning, I'm down in the den watching tapes of races on the old Betamax and, and you know, going over things. I couldn't sleep. And my wife went down and she said, this is wrong. You need help. And, then, and I actually started going to a sports psychologist because, yes, you can be critical of yourself and you have to improve and always, you know, kind of tweak things as an athlete and as a handicapper, but to be that counterproductive, that one race would define you, you know, and, and you learn, you're never as good as you think you are, never as bad as you think you are. You've got to be able to kind of stay even and stay the course.
0: You, meant, you, you mentioned Angel, uh, coming down and you guys, when you were riding, you guys, did you guys get along or no?
1: Not, not early on. We, we really did not like each other. We didn't get on good. Um, you know, he was tough to ride with. Um, and being a kid, you know, he he was going to stake his territory. And, and you know, the li- little known fact is I had him beat at Saratoga the, the year I was an apprentice. Had i been the only apprentice to ever win Saratoga. And I went down in a spill, three days left. He only beat me two winners and, and like seven horses. I was supposed to ride one over the next three days while I was in Saratoga Hospital. Um, but over time and with maturity and, and you also earn respect. You know, if you come in there and you're a cocky kid, you're kind of a punk, you're not going to get anybody's respect. Now, I'm not saying be a pushover. You know, you got to hold your ground. You got to be strong. You got to be tough, but don't be a jerk about it. Um, And I think he recognized how serious I was about what I was doing, being a jockey. And I always did admire his talent. And, we wound up becoming friends, better friends after we weren't riding together anymore. When he started training, I wrote a bunch of winners for him. Um, and we're very dear friends to this day. And I, you know, I, I always admire and appreciate that. I, I will say this. He made you a better rider because if you weren't on 120% on top of your game, he was going to exploit some weakness that you had. Um, and it wasn't just him. I mean, I, I found the overnight from my first ride ever at Belmont Park, and it was a 12 horse field and 10 of the riders in the race are now in the hall of fame. And that, that's a pretty remarkable <laughs> thing. You're walking out of a room, a little kid, you know, 16 years old, living on the backstretch, so riding with this group of guys. And back then a lot of the California riders would ride in New York in the fall because um, they would have the fair meets and Meadowlands was a great meet. So they'd want to do double duty. So you had, you know, Chris McCarron shoemaker pink eye, Angel Cordero, George Velasquez, Eddie May, one after another, after another. And back then, it, it, it's a little different now. Guys manage their careers more. Um, those guys rode every race. They, they you know, Lafitte. We were in a twenty-five thousand dollar maiden race and riding it like it was the Kentucky Derby, and, and that was every race every day.
0: <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't necessarily do that anymore. Um, you know, it's, it's almost like a handicapping angle. If you show, if you see one of those guys show up one of the top riders show up in a, in a cheap race for a rider. They don't, I mean, a, a, an operation they don't typically ride for now at your, your time at, in, in New York, you, you obviously spent some time out in California as well. And, and I guess this will be, I'm going to start with this question and we can transition to your time out in California, but the, your, your career, you won about 4,500 races. Is there a racetrack missing from those forty five hundred wins that you never won at, that might be shocking to some, or that you wish you would have got a win.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's some. I mean, I'd have to kind of go through the mental inventory. Um, you know, I won a lot of different places. Uh, I mean, I remember going to Thistledown to ride the Ohio Derby and winning a uh, twenty five hundred dollar claiming race on the undercard, and was so excited because another track I get to check off that I won at, you know, that kind of thing. I, I, I was always into that. Um, trying to think, you know, like I, all, all the, obviously, uh, tracks on the East Coast, I can't think of one I didn't win at. Um, let, let, let's keep talking, and okay. if I come all up right. with one, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in with that.
0: So here, one of my favorite courses in the world, and it's obviously been under some scrutiny, so I, I wanted just to get your perspective about the course and then your thoughts mm-hmm. about the scrutiny that it's received, but the downhill turf course at Santa Anita, obviously your breeders cup win with the uh, desert code took place on that course. Um, I guess my first question is, did, how much did you enjoy riding it? And do you think there is something to the idea that the crossover of the dirt actually is dangerous as, as someone who sat on their back while they're doing that?
1: Well, I, I loved riding that course. I, I enjoyed that so much. Um, When I got out to California, I had dinner with Lafitte Pink Eye, the jockey. I I feel like I've got to now qualify that, right? You know, we got Lafitte Pink Eye, the broadcaster, who's almost maybe as famous as his dad now. (laughs) And Lafitte, you know, the the retired rider. And we had dinner together. And we were just talking about, you know, riding and things in general, differences, East Coast, West Coast. and, And he said to me, don't feel bad if you don't win a race down the hill right away you know it's, it's kind of tough it usually takes guys a while to figure that course out and so in my mind I heard a challenge I've got to figure this out and I wasn't riding a lot we were at Hollywood Park I was you know riding one or two a day just kind of working more horses in the morning establishing some relationships with different trainers and so if I was done early I lived right behind Santa Anita I would drive back over there and parked by uh, Colorado and jumped the fence and just walked the course and think about it. Started watching a lot of tape of it. And, you know, just wanted to feel comfortable, familiar. It's it's so different than anything I had done before. And I rode four or five down the hill. And I got to be honest with you, all the film, all the thinking about it, walking the course, I felt like a cork on the river. I I just like, whoa, we're going right. whoa, we're going left. whoa, You know, it it, it just was like, I I felt lost out there. And Ron McAnally put me on a horse, seven year old uh, New Zealand bred from he had been racing in in Australia, um, down the hill. His name was Tycoon. And we broke out of the gate. He basically like turned an eye back at me and said, just sit up there and I'll show you how this is done. And, The horse was unbelievable. He did the right-hand bend. He jumped his right lead, hugged that corner, came back to the left, hugged the other way. Won easy,
0: and it was like a light
1: bulb went on. That horse taught me how to ride the hill, and I wound up winning 15 races down the hill that that winter meet at Santa Anita, more than any other rider. And I was very proud of that because, you know, it, it is a course that can be a bit intimidating until you get some comfortability with it. You know, as far as it being dangerous, I I think it's just a bunch of nonsense. Um, You you know, so it's safer to run five furlongs on the turf or five and a half where you're breaking on the dirt for two strides, two or three strides with sprinters, and everybody's jamming in the turn. At least down the hill, you have separation. And if you know if you have a horse that's a little bit leery or is going to react to the crossover, you hide them in behind other horses and they're herd animals. They follow the other horse through. So someone decided that honestly shouldn't have been making that decision. It was unsafe. And they did away with one of the most unique, fun, great races. And as a rider, a race you could win with the fourth or fifth best horse. If you worked out the right trip, it makes no sense to me. Now someone will say, well, they, the mile and an eighth on the turf, they break, you know, on the dirt and they go a few strides on the dirt. And then the turf, you break completely different going a mile and a furlong than you do going five, five and a half. And things are much looser. And, and, you know, horses are going to tend to have the ground break away from the more sprinting, you know, in that setup. And I, I just think it's short sighted and I, I don't agree with it.
0: Now, how, so how, how long were you out there before you, you won the, the Breeders' Cup race?
1: Well, I had actually come back to New York. I was out there for 20 months, came back to New York, um, and then Dave Hoffman called me and said, hey, you want to come out and ride Desert um, Code in the Breeders' Cup? Now, I was also riding a horse named Fairbanks um, that I had won a stake on at Santa Anita and the Hawthorne Gold Cup um, the same day. So I was like, yeah, sure, of course, and um, went out, and I think it was the first or second race of the day, actually the second race of the day, and Desert Code was a horse that liked to lay up fairly close to the pace. And we broke out of the gate, Jonathan, and I, I you know, kind of goosed him, and I, I want to get some position. And we went about 50 yards. He started pinning his ears at me, and, and, you know, he's telling me he wasn't happy. So I said, well, he's telling me something. I got to trust him, you know, that they're probably going much faster, and it's a little harder to judge your your pace going downhill, So I put my hands down. I just let him back up. He backed up to second to last. But at the three eighths pole, when he started leaning on me, I went, oh, I'm going to get a piece of this. I didn't know I was going to be able to work my way, you know, through 12 horses um, and get there. And we made the crossover and I made one key move. Edgar Prado was trying to fit in the kind of space I had made for myself towards the inside. And I put my horse's shoulder on his horse. So I didn't want him to get in there and limit my, my options. So he wound up jumping the horse's heels that was just outside of him. And when they hit the the crossover, they scattered like quail. And boom, there was diabolical in front of me. And I said, well, there's Godolphin, Frankie Dettori. There's my cover. I got to follow a live cover. And came out and nailed him. And, uh, you know, it it was a great thrill because it ended a lot of frustration, too. I mean, I had been kind of thwarted through injuries and some different things uh, uh, of getting that Breeders' Cup win, and then to get it down the hill and, and deliver a ride that I felt certainly helped the cause, um, and Dave Hoffman's had been a huge supporter of mine and had become a dear friend uh, t- to this day, still is, while I was out there, so yeah, it was pretty satisfying.
0: You know, the hill's interesting. You know, I've, I've always loved the hill because um, I, I loved that idea. I thought there was a hidden, it became pretty popular, but I loved that idea of those milers cutting back and felt like a lot of horse players and handicappers at least a long time ago used to miss that. I think it's pretty widespread now, but um, I, I really, it really cemented itself in my, in my life as one of my favorites. Cause I had just fallen in love with Bobby's kitten and I'd fallen in love with him doing all this two-turn business. And my excuse for this horse that I loved was, Oh, if he ever gets to run down the hill, he'll win. So when he won that day, I felt really smart. Um, what horse that you rode in your career, if you could come back and, and, and ride him in, in one more Breeders' Cup race down the hill, what horse do you think would have absolutely loved it down the hill that you rode throughout your career that never had a chance to ride on it?
1: Well, I mean, he he's a Breeders' Cup winner, so maybe this doesn't really answer the question. But I think Artie Schiller would have been an absolute terror down that hill. He had as an explosive, a, a quarter-of-a-mile run of any horse I ever sat on um, and, and, I think six and a half would have just been brilliant for him, but you know, he, he was a Breeders' Cup mile winner. So maybe that's unfair to, to, to say him.
0: No, that, that works for sure. That works, that works for sure. All right. So we got some, we got, we got, I got this list of stories I have is long. So we're going to, we're going to just start no, no rush through them. You take as long as you want, but we, we got to get started on them and we'll never, we'll never get to the bottom of them. Um, Saudi, the first time you went, they didn't want to pay anyone.
1: Uh, we'll kind of leave it a little vague okay but yeah well it wasn't the first time but it was one of the trips um there was some dispute over our pay and i lost my temper and uh kind of you know said some things and used some language and i i left i went to my room to get my stuff and leave And as I was coming back, a couple of the other riders that we were all kind of traveling from different places to ride there, like came running up to me as I was leaving my room into the hallway. Like, I can't believe we spoke to them like that. I'm like, the hell with this. I'm out of here, you know. And they're like, well, they're going to pay us. They're going to pay us. And we wound up getting paid. I don't want to go into all the gory details, but we wound up getting paid. Um, I decided not to go back after that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Probably a smart decision. So, so this is, I've actually heard this one before. Um, and uh, Joe told me this one, and so and, and he tells me that your recollection of it is going to be different than his. But in 2002, you were disqualified on a horse by the name of Silver Squire. What happened after that? Yep.
1: Uh, and by the way,
0: all, Andy Sterling said that whatever your reaction was, he doesn't know what it was, but he said whatever your reaction was was just because the horse shouldn't have come down. It was a
1: terrible, terrible call, but. I, let, let me set it up so that you'll even get a better understanding besides just being a terrible call because we see bad calls all the time, right? We were at Belmont um, and I got bothered in the acorn. And there's no doubt I, in my mind I should have got put up. And they didn't, they, didn't, they left it the way it was. That was be- I, is that better, second, uh, better than honor? Better than honor, yeah. yeah. And, and I got floated out you know, by three ring all the way past the middle of the track. I mean, really got hampered, get be the neck. They left it alone. Okay. We get to Saratoga. Um, Early in the meet, I I got dropped. I was splitting horses. Javier Castellano hit right-handed, came back over. I went down at the eighth pole, spent the night in Saratoga Hospital, Um, and they didn't give him days. About three days before Silver Squire, I'm in front on a two-year-old with Phil Gleaves. Mark Guidry's going by me. And you'll see sometimes in Saratoga, if if a baby's – more towards the middle of the track, they spot something, and, I, and I've gone out there and looked, coming to the wire, like near the winner's circle, and they'll they'll sometimes jump to their left lead and kind of like cock their head like they see something. And I've gone out there trying to figure out what they spot, and I can't figure it out. But anyway, he was running by me. I was going to be second, and the horse jumped to our left lead and, and knocked me sideways, beat me a length and a half. I didn't claim foul. They put up the inquiry. Uh, I talked to the stewards, and... I said, yeah, well, yeah. She, she ran into me as she was running by me. They left it official. I had no problem with that. The best horse won. So I go back to the jockey's room, and one of the stewards came down. Said, so, Meg, we couldn't take that down. The best horse won. I said, Judge, that's the right thing. Best horse won. Leave it alone. Two or three days later, I come from last on Silver Squire in Six Horse Field. I'm blown by the leader. He was always a little awkward changing leads. He jumped his right lead, took a step in. I brushed the horse inside of me. I pulled off of him. I won the race by six lengths and that horse finished second. And I didn't even make as much contact with him as was made with me a few days earlier. So I'm riding a bunch of races that day. I hear George Chavez, the other rider claims foul with the outrider. That's his right to do. I have no problem with that inquiry. He claims foul. We come back. I talked to the stewards in the booth and I basically said, judge, my horse took a half a step in. I brushed him, I pulled off him, I beat him six lengths, he was second, essentially saying what they said to me a few days earlier, well, the best horse won. I didn't cost him a placing or anything. And I came out, and maybe this was my mistake, and they thought it was cocky. I said to John, I said, John, I ride like the next five races in a row, let's just take the picture. There's no way they can take this number down. We took the picture, I left the winner's circle. I turned the corner in the jockey's room in the little alcove there, and boom, the number comes down. So I'm apoplectic I can't it's just impossible and I go to pick up the phone and I I, I get the stewards on the phone and I I let them have it both barrels with the worst possible language how can you blankety blank blank you know justify it you can't talk to us like that and I said well I just effing did and I slammed the phone down and at that point George Chavez turned the corner and saw how mad I was He should have just said nothing to me, but he said, Oh, I'm surprised to take you down. I didn't claim foul. Well, I heard him claim foul. So I went off on him and I was actually going to go after him and, and like, you know, don't lie to me. You know, I tied language for him and instead I turned on the phone and I ripped the phone out of the wall and smashed it into a thousand pieces. And then I went in the back and Jerry Bailey, I guess, intercepted Joey who was coming to the jockey's room to see me and I picked up the um garbage pail in the back and put it through the plate glass window. Um then I went and took off all of my horses and they said, You can't you, you you've got to go to first aid. I said, I'm not sick, I'm sick of these, you know, MFers and i and I left. And I took Joey and we went down to Skylerville Did he tell you this part of the story?
0: Yeah, yeah, this is the part.
1: So he had shorts on. I had, I had gone right from working horses with boots and jeans. So I just stripped down and jumped into the river buck naked. Joey's in shorts. And a, guy from the sky, a cop from the Skylabville Police Department comes and parks right there. Now I can't get out of the river. I'm, I'm, it felt like I'm treading water for an hour. It's probably like two minutes. And I'm like, I now I know I'm going to get arrested. They're gonna say that this guy lost his mind. He's on drugs. So, you know. Thankfully, the guy wound up leaving. And, and and but Joey tells me afterwards I was speeding and stuff. I don't remember that
0: part. <laughs> 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 all right. So uh, we're all, we're all, we, we gotta let's let's stick with the temper. We all everybody's got one. I'm I'm bad too myself. The uh, and Joe said you might dodge part of the who this was, but there was a trainer that got after you. Because you pulled up dodging a spill.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, will, I it, it, Let's not say the name. I don't think it'd be fair. But um, it, it's a 100% true story. Um, I had ridden the horse the start before in the dirt. He won at Belmont. We go to Saratoga and, you know, let's reinvent the wheel and run him on the turf. And a hundred yards into the race, he's he, not handling. He's, he's switching leads back and forth. He's uncomfortable. By the time we turn for home, I'm fifteen lengths last. And uh, Johnny Velasquez gets squeezed between two horses. He goes down. Well, I've got all day to miss it, so I go to steer around. The horse won't steer. He just turned his head. He's going to either run into the horse or or run over Johnny. So I pulled him up. Came off the turf of course. They opened it up right there by the wire. And I jumped off the horse and I, I said to the trainer, you know, you just didn't handle the turf, you know, just running back in the dirt, it will be fine, you know. And I could see he's upset. I said, you all right, what's the matter? I don't understand what kind of decisions you're making out there. What the hell are you thinking? I could, I could be, I was beat 20 lengths when I pulled up. What, like, what kind of decision could I make to to counteract that? So it just came to me in the moment and it's very, kind of overweight trainer. And I looked at him, I said, listen to me, I got second split seconds to make decisions out there. I said, you had a lifetime inside of those pies and cheeseburgers to get that fat. And he took a swing at me, um, but he was, he was far too slow. (laughs) And, 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 you know, they they got in between us because he was in trouble. If if they let me get a hold of him after he took the first swing, but um, anyway, it, it, Again, and let, let me say, I don't want people to think I, I'm actually a really nice guy. And and since I can eat, I, I I don't even know why certain things used to get me mad. I was just hangry back then.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think it's meat at all. I think it's, you were you were looking out for Johnny. I mean, I could see that. It's, I think it's great. I think it's great. What uh, did you did you have a did you have a was was weight an issue for you? Does it was it something that you had had to be cognizant of every every single day every every meal every every decision you made
1: every waking moment um you you know you've worked with me see me I'm not like heavy I'm 145 pounds now when I was riding I was 112 um I honestly don't even know how I did it for as long as I did it I was like a piece of rawhide um and it was it was constant and when I was younger I would go up and down a lot like leave the jockey's room on a uh, back then we raced six days a week. I could leave on a Monday night weighing 112 and be 120 by Wednesday because well, I had day off, I relaxed and not even going crazy eating, just hydrating, you know, you have to pull all the weight to get it off. And as I got older, I found out it was just much better, healthier, and easier to just stay constant, whether you had a week off, two days off, you know, um, I, I, I was actually off a month. I had had uh, some minor back surgery. I got married, went on my honeymoon. I went to Maui and, uh, I, I was so worried about blowing up that I would, I would go get on like the, the, um, they have the scales to weigh meat and produce when it comes into the restaurants and the hotel. I, I got friendly with the chef. I'd go get on the produce scales, um, and literally stayed 112 throughout my whole honeymoon. I was off the whole month. So I, it, it, it was constant. It was hard. It, it, I got better at it when I had kids because, you know, your kids don't want to know how tired you are or worn out or dehydrated or, you know, and, and you're hungry when you get home from work. They want to have a catch in the backyard or they want to, you know, do something. So you, you, you've you got to put their needs before yours. And, and I I got much better at it because of them, you know.
0: Now uh this actually goes well um, I'm, I'm sure that, that there's a lot of hot box moments um, when you were trying to uh, to uh, control the, the weight. Uh, Joe was telling me about a situation where you after you got your GED you're talking to another rider about it uh, in the hot box and he said it was an interesting conversation. Well-
1: yeah, I I felt bad about this one. I I actually never did get the GED. When Joey was an infant, I you know you're, you're a new parent, you have all these ideals, and I'm looking at him in the crib, and I you know, man, I only finished the eighth grade, and I you know I, I want him to you know go to high school, go to college. I want it, you know every parent wants better for their kid, and I said you know what, I, I'm gonna go to Sulanka High School, go to night school, get my GED. And this way, someday, like he decides he doesn't want to go on, I can at least say to him, I finished and, you know, not lie to him. Now, it's funny, by your third kid, it's not like you're worried about lying to them, where you're like, no, no, you're going to do what I say. I'm going to put my foot in your ass. But um, when you're a new parent, you have different ideals, right? So (laughs) I went to the night's classes. I did it all. I, I did the hard part. I took the practice test, aced it. It wasn't really very difficult at all. And then I had to go to West Hempstead to apply for, to actually take the, the actual test. So when I got there, they were like, oh, there's a waiting period, we were backlogged, we got a lot of people taking the test, um, we can put you down for August. Well, I'm going to be in Saratoga in August. So I was like, well, can you put me down for September? Well, no, you got to come back and reapply. So I, ne- I wound up never doing it, I, I, which is unfortunate because I did the hard part, but I never did get my GED. So I'm in the hot box at I' this one particular rider. I don't know how the conversation came up, but education. And uh, I said about the GED, because I had t- actually taken the, pretty much the same test. And I said, well, you'd have to be almost an idiot, a moron, to not pass that. And the guy got real quiet. And I went to myself, oh, no, don't tell me. And he, he said to me, uh, I failed it three times felt horrible, Jonathan. I was like, oh what a, you know, talk about putting your foot in your mouth.
0: Oh, and it I happens kind of, to all of us. It happens to all of r- us.
1: Yeah, but this rider rode a lot in Jersey and he would ride some of the winters in New York. And so I said to him, I said, Yeah, but you took it in New Jersey, right? And he said, Yeah. It's, you know, it's much tougher in New Jersey than New York. That's it. I you know, I, I was just trying to get I felt horrible. I, I really felt bad.
0: That's a phenomenal, phenomenal save. <laughs>
1: at least I got by, you
0: know, Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a great, great save. Um, now when you were, when you, you know, you had a lot of injuries and I read somewhere that, that you, you kind of started, you picked up yoga. Is that, do you still, is it something you're still interested in? Do you still mess with it at all? How much, how beneficial was it in your recovery?
1: It was hugely beneficial in my recovery, um, especially after I broke my leg, um, right before I didn't show that was, that was a really tough rehab, um, cause I had also ruptured my Achilles tendon and, um, you know, after the bones had healed, I, I was just having so much trouble with the tendon. And as a rider, you have to have uh, a lot of flexion in your heels because you ride down in your heels and the stirrups. And, um, and I just, I didn't even know if I was going uh, to be able to come back because of the the Achilles tendon, not because of the broken leg. And, um, I took up yoga and it really got me much more limber. I don't practice it actively anymore. I I still stretch a lot. My my big thing now is hiking. That's my, what I do to be really physical right now I'm working on my little farm here. But uh, yoga was huge. Um, and I, I think in some ways probably prolonged my career. Um, and it, it also, you know, it's important to rehab properly. I was actually talking to Channing Hill uh, the other day who had, um, you know, surgery and broke his back. And um, we were talking, I actually broke a couple of vertebrae in his neck and, you know, cause I've been through it and I just said right now, be patient and you know, just get better, but really embrace the, the physical rehabilitation and, and don't skip any steps because it'll show up later. and, um, we had a great conversation. It's another good kid. You know, you, you hate to see them have to go through that stuff, but that's part of a rider's life.
0: The, who's the best rider that you were ever around? That uh, they're they're you know obviously, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take Ramon off because I, I feel like that would be the definite answer. But um, injury prevented them from being uh, as as great as they possibly could have been.
1: Uh, that, that's a tough question. And there has been a lot of riders that injuries that, you know, have affected in different ways. Um, Ruben and to me, um, probably the strongest finisher I ever rode with. And, and that includes everybody. Um, and, and I'm talking about all the world-class finishers, Lafitte and Angel R- Ruben. I, I don't, uh, to me, the strongest rider at, from the eighth pole of wire, that was the guy I didn't want to hook. Um, and he had broken his collarbone pretty bad and it just never healed. Right. And, and um it, it was kind of the start of the end for his career and and he was rolling at the time I mean he had just won the Belmont with Coastal like the year before and um just a world-class great rider um and and you know unfortunately that that I think always kind of curtailed his career but there's been so many over the years Rene Douglas is a tremendous rider paralyzed in the spill um one of my mentors Ron Turcotte who obviously was a, more in the twilight's career and had, you know, won a triple crown and derbies and everything. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's just so hard and, and, you know, getting back to, it, it's like, it, it's easy to criticize. And again, as long as the criticize criticisms warranted, but, um, it, it, it's dangerous and it's hard and you're making weight and you're constantly, you know, I always, compare a jockey to being like an actor you know an actor when he starts out he's got to audition for all these different roles i'm sure tom cruise has a commercial out there somewhere he's not proud of right but you you'll ride any horse when you start out as a jockey same as an actor you take any role and then when you start building some credibility you get an agent you start trying to look for the academy award-winning roles which are the good horses the steak horses um so it's constant and and it's not like other sports you know an athlete gets a contract well you know, win or lose, he's still getting paid injured. He's still getting paid as a rider. You've got to perform and you've got to win. And that's what leads to guys riding hurt or coming back quicker from injuries because you're on the sidelines. Other people are riding your horses. You're not necessarily going to get those horses back or you're going to lose an outfit. So it, it, it's a lot of pressure. Um, and and I, I, I would hope if people take away one thing for what I'm saying is just maybe be a little bit more understanding of the pressure.
0: Yeah, it's a thing we've talked about recently. Actually, uh, I think the conversation kind of came up where I really realized it with uh, Tyler Gaffleyon and his ride on Zulu Alpha in, uh, at, down at Gulfstream. Uh, I guess maybe Florida Derby Day, and it was yeah. it was it was supposed to be a paceless race, um, and it kind of was a paceless race. And he moved a little bit early. And I think people thought, you know, it was a big ordeal. Tyler, oh, what an idiot. Can't believe he moved so early. And I thought to myself, it's when I realized, well, I've, I've kind of had this battle before. But you can't have it two ways. And if he stays back and someone wires the field and he comes running late and runs second, you can't be mad at him for that and be mad at him for moving too early. You have to pick one. And you need to stay consistent. Now, if you want to be a guy who wants your riders to be passive, then then you can't get mad at them ever for for being too far back in a slow pace race. And the same can be said about you. You can't be mad at them for being too aggressive, and and then you get mad when they get hooked in a speed duel and lose. I, it's 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 just right. not fair. And you know we have the uh, the luxury of being able to make those decisions from our couch um, at full weight uh, without our lives on the line, without fractions in the top right corner of our, uh, of our vision. You know what I mean? Like there's a, or, or they don't have that. Yeah. And so it, it's just, it's a, it, and then like you mentioned, the, the, the risking of the life thing is, is probably the biggest part of it.
1: Well, again, it's just, it's so much pressure and it's just constant. You know, you're only as good as your last ride. I, you know, just because you kind of alluded to it, like pace. I, I will say this. This is a ter- terrifically talented group of young riders we have now. I mean, really, really solidly strong, good young riders. But, and this is a generalization. I'm not saying everybody. But I do think that they're not nearly as good a judge of pace as riders of yesterday. And I know I'm going to sound like the old curmudgeon guy back in my day. But I, I think there's real reasons for that. Riders don't work as many horses out in the mornings as they used to. I mean, everybody used to work every day, you know, from Angel Cordero uh, to me to, you know, Tony Grael, to George Velasquez. We all worked horses almost every day. So now not only are you have developed a clock in your head and you know what an eighth of a mile and 12 feels like, 12 and 1, 13, 11 and change, but you're constantly tuning that clock because you're constantly using it. Now, I don't think riders – not that they they work. I just don't think they work as many as we used to. But it's become very fashionable for trainers to put walkie-talkies on, you know, headsets on the riders in the morning. And the trainers, another – you know, they want to control every bit of it, you know, to let your quarterback play. And they're telling them how fast they're going every furlong. All right, you went 12-2. and two, Uh, Thirteen. So you're taking away that nuance, that art of developing and keeping that clock tuned by having this aid in the morning that you will not have in the afternoon. And then you get upset with a guy because he's not quite sure how fast or slow he's going. Well, he doesn't have you in his ear telling him how fast or slow he's going now. So I think that guys make a mistake. I think it's short-sighted to do that. Now, if you want to do that with exercise riders, because they're not going to ride in the afternoon, but you should never do that with a jockey.
0: Is there a rule against doing that in the afternoon? Like yeah, having an earpiece yeah, in?
1: Yeah, anything electronic, you're, you're not allowed.
0: Oh, so, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not like NASCAR, you know, like you know, so-and-so's drafting this guy. You know, and, and, and honestly, I really do think the trainers make a mistake doing that. I think, you know, obviously Tom Brady goes to the line of scrimmage. He's got a play that they're, they're supposed to, to call. They're going to they're gonna run. But he reads the defense different. You're going to question him? No. You've got to let free guys up to to react. I always said my favorite instructions were get to the paddock if I'd ever ridden the horse. Listen, this horse is a little better with a target. He may ease up when he hits the front and wait on horses. He's a little better outside, a little better inside. May lug in, may lug out. Not lay third, be four lengths up the lead. All right, lay third, four lengths off to lead. uh, If they go 22 or they go 50, I mean – it, guys want to micromanage if if you trust a guy and you have confidence to put him on yours let him do his job and I think guys do a big disservice to themselves the riders the connections the betters when they overdo it with instructions I, I wrote a really good horse for a dear friend of mine years ago and the horse is coming off a bit of a layoff and he tells me in the paddock listen just don't get too engaged I, I, I'm a worker too short And I just I think he'll come up short if he's got to make a, like a long sustained kind of run. And he was a speed horse. So I break and instead of just doing what I do, right. Bounce him out, put him on the lead. You guys adjust around me. I'm kind of half assing it. I'm going to let him make the lead, but I don't want to use him. And now somebody rushes up and they got like three quarters of the length on me and we're getting to the turn and everything inside of me screaming, give him a little goose and get up in there and make sure you hold it. Because what people don't understand is if you're, if a horse outruns you three quarters of the length of a turn, you're inside of him. You don't have ownership of that spot. You have to give way. Either you have to get up in there or you have to get out of there. You can't have your horse's head in there and say, well, I was there. That That's completely not within your rights. You have to make a decision. So my decision, because that split second when I go, ah, I go now. I know I'm going to have to continue to run from here, and I ease back, wind up in trouble, finish third. I should. If he would have never said anything to me, I know the horse wins. Don't overcoach. Don't micromanage. Allow riders to do their job. You've done your job, prepared them, got them there. You can tell them what you prefer or what the horse may prefer, but then let them do their job.
0: Now, if you or or you know you had you had uh one mount and your life depended on it. would you want to be uh on the front would you want to be sitting second off the leader outside the leader or would you want to uh be coming from out of it like wh- where where is your preference uh
1: it, it, it's such a hard question in you know, different scenarios you know i, I mean I, I was good on the lead because i i was a very good judge of pace um I tended to be a good gate rider, and that's something we should talk about, gate infractions and things at some point. But, um, you know, when you ride a horse that's versatile, like like Hidden Lake, who I rode, she was champion mare in 97. If they went slow, she would just go to the lead. If they went fast, she could be last. If there was just a little space on the rail, she'd bully her way through. If she came around, she wouldn't hang. Like, she was a jockey's dream. You, you never went to the gate going, I got to get this kind of trip. She would just if she was back, it was because they were going too fast. If she was in front, because they gave it to you. Um, those are the best kind of horses. Ideally, you want a horse that possesses speed but can stalk and rate. You know, you don't You, know, you get these horses that need the lead, and, and you can be victimized by a 40 to one shot because you know, if your horse is just not brave and you've got to stay in front of this horse and run as fast as you can kind to of say that horse isn't going to finish anywhere but he's going to cost you so and when you deep closer and then you know pace wise you, you could be compromised
0: when you say brave we hear it all the time when you say courage and heart what what is the what does that actually mean physically are they do the do the horses actually shy away and reserve their energy in a like in a almost like they're Fetal positioning, like they're oh, I'm not going to run fast because I'm not going to do that. Is that what you mean by brave?
1: Well, like a, a horse, bounced out of the gate, he opens up a length or two, and his ears come up, and gets in a beautiful rhythm, and his breathing's controlled, and 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 he's in control of the situation. Um, the same horse pops out of the gate, and somebody's on him, and if he's not a horse that that is brave, that that is not the herd leader, so to speak, he's got this horse on him. His stride is in his fluid. His breathing is in his control. He's using more energy, even if he's not going as fast, because he's got company. Some horses just don't do good with company. I always try to um, use the analogy of a boxer. A lot of boxers can throw a punch. Great boxers can take a punch as well. And and it's the same thing with a racehorse. A lot of horses can throw a punch. A lot of horses possess speed. There's a lot of horses that can't take a punch. Um, and, and I guess that's maybe the best way I can explain when I say brave also, kickback is another thing. Years ago, like the inner track had such, at Aqueduct had such a reputation for being speed-favoring, and it wasn't always the surface. It had a lot to do with the kickback, the kickback between the salt and the pea gravel and, and, and the, the, the frozen dirt. A lot of horses just could not run through the kickback. It was I, You would have a thinsulate, uh, a, a turtleneck of thinsulate, and your silks, and all the blood vessels on your shoulders and arms would be broken up by the end of the day. You're all... You know, blood under the skin and red. So a horse, even though they have their own natural protective eye covering, like a third eyelid, they wouldn't run through the kickback. So now, not only are you you got a track that usually was kind to speed horses, the closes are up against you because they can't take the kickback. And no one ever used to talk about that. And I used to get if I hit the front, I was never in a straight path. I was going to spray three four paths this way, three four paths back that way. Make sure everybody gets some pepper spray.
0: <laughs> Actually. I actually heard this year at Breeders Cup, uh, one of the reasons that, that I I don't remember who I heard it from. They thought that Omaha Beach ran the way he did, uh, was because of the kickback. And that it wasn't a it wasn't a speed favoring track, but it was a kickback track and that and that uh, and, and a lot of horses ran good that ran well after that that were that were stuck in behind horses. It's yeah. one thing that I've tried to you know, I've tried to take more I've tried to take a little bit more consideration in with, uh, and it's why I keep finding myself liking outside posts so much more because you just you're just not going to get the kickback as much way out there.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting too. Like even like really good horses, they get hit with the kickback. They get mad and they take a hold of the bit and they want to run after the horse. They get they, they, they want to run through it. You know, your average horse gets it and they, they kind of back off. They come off the bridle, and now you're trying to hold a spot off the bridle. It's not as easy to judge, you know, where the other horse's heels are when your horse's head is up in your face. Um, you know, so it, it is something that if you can learn the, to pick it up and pay attention to it, and that'll even afford opportunities. That horse really resented it last time. Even though he wasn't out and out climbing, now he gets this cozy outside post. You know, it, it's definitely something to look for. Now, just quickly to touch on, like, starts. You know, we see a lot of lot of raggedy starts, horses breaking hard left, hard right. And I really think the stewards have done a disservice to all riders when they've come up with this idea that, well, it's just start. It's just start. You can't control the horse at the start, which is, first of all, complete nonsense. One out of so many, yeah, they'll break so hard left to left or right, you can't stop them, but at least make an effort. And my belief, part of the reason I think you see so many horses breaking left to right, years ago, Jonathan, they put you in the gate, and the gate guy would get out, and you had to handle your horse on your own. And unless the horse was really acting up and then you had to ask the starter for permission to say, sir, can I please get a hand in here? not. I can't get him to stand up. And you may or may not get, it. if he didn't think you needed it, he'd tell you, square him up yourself, Jack. So you learned how to feel how balanced your horse was in the gate and how to put them on their feet. You're talking about a thousand pound animal, If too much weight is to the right or too much on one leg. They've got to readjust as they're trying to break out of the gate. That's why they're going left and right. And then compound it. With the fact, because these kids don't learn that. Everybody gets handled now, and the assistant starter can only know that the horse is head straight. He can't tell you if that horse is more weight on his right hind leg or his left hind leg. He's supposed to be 100% square, all four feet distributed evenly. So if, if you're not conveying that to him, and again, it's a lost art because you're not having to do it as much because you're not handling the horse yourself. They're breaking left to right, and it's compounded by the fact that the stewards have basically turned a blind eye to the first five jumps. So if I get shut off five times in a row leaving the gate, the next time my horse goes left to right, am I going to straighten him up? Heck no. You're on your own because I'm the only, the only guy who gets bounced around leaving here. It's a disservice to everybody. It starts to be a lot cleaner if they crack down on it and maybe get a little bit of a course about how to make sure your horse is square and balanced in the gate.
0: What changed getting the, the starters in the gate with them? Why, why, what, what, was the, what was the switch? Why did that happen?
1: I guess, you know, as, as people like, you know, someone would say, well, that guy got, had a hand and I didn't and my horse got off that and people started complaining about it and then better started complaining about it. So now everybody gets a, a handle. To be honest with you, I used to get away from the gate a lot cleaner. Not all the time. And the assistant starters are amazing, but I'm not, these guys the job they do and the life they, they put their life on the line to save you half the time. But, when you're used to doing it without somebody in there, I, I would get off so clean all the time because you don't have somebody right on top of you. You're not brushing them as you leave in there. I, I just think it's, it's a lost art, but probably by like 1990 and forward, everybody gets a, gets an assistant starter
0: in the gate. So I would imagine that based on this, where this conversation has gone gone so far about the gate that yeah, there's no doubt in your mind that Byron should have been disqualified.
1: Well, a- absolutely. And, and I actually asked the, um, the steward at the time, who's now um, the uh, head of the California Racing Board, Scott Chaney, how how could you not take this horse down the next morning? And he said, well, it was at a point in the race that it, it wasn't a critical point in the race. The start isn't a critical point of a race. It's maybe the most critical point. I've seen more horses lose because of the start than, than any other part of the race. So I never could believe that rationale that reasoning behind it um uh, yeah i I personally i i would have come down if i was yeah
0: and look i mean i i'm I'm sure there is some starts where it doesn't matter but i tell you what it it surely impacted the race dynamics because when when he broke he he wiped out moreno who was absolutely going to the front and it
1: changed the complexion of the race
0: absolutely shared belief wins that shared belief wins that breeders cup if, if, uh, if Byron, if Byron breaks straight, cause Moreno would have went, they would have went fast, shared belief ran huge. Um, yeah. but you know, you know, he, he, he wasn't going to catch Byron into that, into that slow pace. So, you know,
1: um, no, I, I mean, to me, those those are some of the things from a race riding standpoint that I think it would be good for everybody to be addressed, but it, it doesn't seem like anybody's in a rush to, to rectify any of that stuff. Like, well, uh, that was a start. To me, that makes no sense.
0: Yeah, it's it's one thing. I mean, obviously, it's frustrating about about. Uh, look, I mean, I I know that when I say I love it, um, and I love this game. I, I don't even feel like my love is it like it like it equates to what yours is. You dedicated your life to it and risked your life. So, but I love this game, and I really do want to see improvements. And you know, we actually talked about it yesterday in a tweet that I made about uh, why why are we still doing two dollar win. Uh, payoffs. Like why, why not do $1 win payoffs? Because like, when new people come to the game, it's confusing. And the answer that we always get when it comes to innovation and in racing is well, but you know, that's just, that's, it's just tradition. That's what we've done. It's how we've done it. And I absolutely hate that answer because I feel like it's so debilitating in our growth. You know, you think about all of these other sports and the changes that they've made hockey changed their, uh, their, their overtime, made the, the goalies' pads smaller. The NFL's changing all the rules with making it more of an offensive game, but their numbers and growth and fandom is growing. Basketball, they're, you know, they, they've changed the, the playoff structure. It's like, we don't change a lot. And and it's frustrating because I feel like it holds us back to a certain extent.
1: Well, I think you're 100% correct. I mean, you know, for years, the minimum bet was $2. And... Um, once they change the minimum bet to a dollar on win place and show and, you know, the exactors and things like that, they never changed the, the, the way the prices are broken out. And did with, with exactors, you know, the $1 exactor and, you know, stuff like that. But for the win thing, it makes it, once you change the minimum bet, the payout should reflect for the minimum bet. (laughs) I mean, it's just a no brainer.
0: I know. I just thought it just, it it drives me crazy. What now, Another thing that I'm assuming that was, a, was something that took place when you were riding, I don't know if it even had a name then, but maybe it did, but uh, herding. What are your thoughts on herding and, and the in the non-contact interference that, that takes place we see very often?
1: Well, it, it, the definition of herding in the 80s, let's say, to now is is completely different. And I think sometimes guys actually are inhibiting their own horse, trying so hard to angle out to get to another horse. You got to go forward. Herding in its truest sense, race riding is a form of herding, or herding is a form of race riding, excuse me, is very nuanced. And it's just coming out enough to make your horse meet a challenge, not going out five paths or continue to take them out. It's going out to meet the challenge and join in. A horse is a herd animal. A lot of horses will hit the lead and they'll ease themselves up. So, if someone's coming, you want your horse to be able to engage. It's about just sifting over, shifting ground just enough to meet the challenge and then run down there with them, not to continually come out, come out, come out, come out. All those would have been automatic takedowns in the 80s. You know, people, you know, Angel, rough rider, this, that, he wasn't that rough. He, he was very good at getting to that line and riding the gray area of that line and never going over it half the ones I see now come out, come out, come out, come out. Now we're all running sideways through the stretch. They should all, they should be automatic takedowns.
0: Now you, you spent uh, a majority of this summer. I mean, actually the entire summer, um, with, uh, while you were doing the TV stuff, you were also an agent. And, uh, so I wanted to start with how many agents did you fire in your career? And, and then, and then also, um, You know, did you enjoy that? Did do do you you know? Obviously, you were doing it in in New York before the shutdown. Do you do you you think you'll continue to do it? Where are you at with the whole agent thing?
1: Yeah, I I don't I don't think it's for me, honestly. Um, You know, I I just I have such strong ideas and, and approaches to how when I wrote. It's really hard for me to separate, and I'm trying to make people fit into my mold the way I thought things should be done, um, you know, from a rider's standpoint, um, and it's a bit frustrating at times to watch races and go, you know, should do this, do that. Um, uh, you know, I had Declan Carroll over the winter, really nice kid. Um, you know, comes from a good racing family. I enjoyed working with him; great work ethic, had Chris Landaros last uh, summer, you know, and, and Chris, and I had some great conversations. Chris got a great deal of talent. Um, you know, for every athlete, there's a last day. There's there's a moment you can't do that thing anymore. Whether it's football, hockey, baseball, basketball, um, being a jockey, every jockey has a last ride. Now, if you're fortunate, you get to pick when you want to stop, like Jerry Bailey or Chris McCarran, Pat Day. But the vast majority of riders don't get to pick their last ride when it's over. They 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 it it's Put upon them, you know they they get banged up one last time or an injury they can't come back from. And do you want to look back on your career and go, man, I could have done more. I could have, I could have, I should have enjoyed it more because you know you got to enjoy the process too. Being out there in the mornings, the interactions with people, race trackers, getting on the horses, um, the interaction with the horses themselves. Like I, I loved every bit of that. Like I, I really enjoyed getting to the track early in the morning, getting my coffee and my form at the kitchen and, and, you know, talking with a couple of the guys and grooms. And then you know, I'd always pick out a, a, a two-year-old of Kimmel's that I would gallop every day, not just when they work. So I would have a reason to be at the barn and gallop that particular two-year-old and kind of develop them. And so you know, if you're going to do this long term, you've really got to love it and enjoy the process as much as you do the, you know, just the actual writing and the end result. And um, that's the one thing, like when I, I was running the apprentice jockey program for Naira for a few years and I had Irad and I had Jose and I had Manny Franco. And I, I, imp- I tried to impress upon them that one day you won't be able to do this. And you, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get to pick it. But if you don't, don't look back on it with any regret and go, man, I could have done better. I should have made more out of the gifts God gave me. And that's the only thing. I I really went to a dark place the year after I had to stop riding. The first three or four months I didn't because I was just so hurt. I I almost didn't care. But then when I started feeling better, I really went into a dark place. Depression, you know, I I missed it, wanting to do it. it. But the thing that saved me that that I was able to latch onto is I could look in the mirror and know. I left it all out there. I couldn't have done more with the gifts God gave me. I wasn't built to be a jockey. I lived on 700 calories a day. Man, it was cool getting up every day and going to a racetrack.
0: Now, I mean, I think this is an obvious question and answer, but I, I just want to hear you kind of say it. How, how much better, or, or would it not really make a difference at this point, but how much better would your life be if you still had the ability to at least get on a thoroughbreds back?
1: Uh, It would be great. I I mean, I, you know, it's, it's something that I think about a lot because especially at Saratoga you're out every morning, I never really galloped racehorses at my natural weight. Like I was a little kid and I was very light and gallop horses, but then when I was a jockey, a lot of people came to me to get on rank horses and and help settle them down. And, and I was 30 pounds under my natural weight and, and, I could handle tough horses and things, and I always had this idea, man, what's it going to be like when I've got 20, 25 pounds more on me on these tough horses? Am I going to, like, will I be able to take it to to another level on the horses that you can handle and stuff? And I never got the ability to find that out, And, but it is funny now at this point. I mean, it's over 10 years since I rode. I'll be at the track, and I'll see a good one go by Jonathan, I go, man. Just let me breeze one. Let me sit on one like that. Right
0: then, I'll see one stumbling. Man, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know there's someone out there running off. You're like, no, no, I'm, I'm good there. And I, I think it's important to note that you're you're you said about you know the apprentice jockey uh, program at Naira, when you helped with Irad Jose and Manny. Um, my time on the backside and my time hanging out with with my friends who own and hanging out at trainers' barns whatever it was that you, and and maybe they had it already, uh, but you made sure that it stayed there. If people don't know, when it comes to, to Irad and Jose who get all the notoriety that they get and Manny who's getting the notoriety that he deserves at this point, those kids work their asses off. There is no, there's no, oh, they're at the, where they're out partying, they didn't show up. And those kids are there every morning and they work a ton and I don't know if they work as many as you guys used to work back in the day, but they don't take days off, and, and they've earned their success.
1: They, they work hard. They absolutely deserve all their success. And you know, one of the things I was proud of with the Apprentice Jockey Program, because it did exist when I went to work for NIRA. as far as they would go over film every Sunday morning. I expanded the program, um, bringing a nutritionist, talk about food, talk about nutrition, talk about – looking at food as fuel. Um, you know, as a jockey, you know, we eat as a social thing, so much people in general, you go out, you hang out, you have a couple of drinks, you you eat, as a jockey, you can't eat like that. You've got to look at whatever I'm putting into me. What is this doing for me? What, how is this going to help me be stronger? Have stamina, stay clear headed. So, so you've got to look at food as fuel. So I have nutritionists come in talk to them, have somebody come down from the press department, how to deal with the press. You know, when not speaking English, some of the guys, when they first get here, getting them a tutor, getting them, you know, English lessons. You've got to be able to communicate. It's a, it's a communication game. Be able to talk to the owner, the trainer. Um,
0: the, the, had, those three guys, their English is so good, by the way. Manny's, Manny's English from the first time I met him until the last time I talked to him, it's unbelievable. Um, Jose obviously is, is fortunate in the fact that his, his wife is, is American. So, you know, and at home you're talking to her every day. And so, um, no, that, that, that's awesome. That's a huge part that I think that, that I, I think maybe I heard you tell me, or maybe it was Gary told me that he had an edge in an inquiry on the phone because oh, absolutely, you could speak English uh, and yeah. the other guys couldn't.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's why I think it's even silly to talk to riders. And it was a huge advantage for somebody like Gary, myself, Jerry Bailey, because English is our first language. And you get on the phone and, well, Judge, he leaned into my hip. He shifted my horse's weight out to the right. If he didn't make the initial contact, I wouldn't come in. You know, Mary had a little lamb. You're giving him a story. You, don't, you just want to come down, right? Or you want to get the other guy taken down. Why, could you imagine in football, referee throws the flag, pass interference, then he asked the receiver, did he touch you before the ball got there? Then he asked the, the, the defender, did you, did you touch him before the ball? What are they going to say? They're going to defend their position, how it serves them. How many guys are going to go, yeah, I, I got him. Come on. It, it's silly to talk to Narayan. It really is. And, and, again, it might sound hypocritical. It was an edge for me. I liked it, but it, it makes no sense.
0: Right. Um, Yeah, so I, I I didn't I didn't mean to interrupt. I just thought that was an interesting point about uh, about them no, being yeah. so working so hard at, at that.
1: Well, and then that was the thing too. So then, like a dear friend of mine who's a horse owner, Jesse Glacius, um, financial guy, money management, come in, talk to them about, you know, you're getting a paycheck for thirty thousand this week. That's not all your money. You have a partner. His name's Uncle Sam. So you make sure you put money away for taxes and th- you know things like that. Things that. You know, when you first came around, when I first came around early 80s, no, nobody talked to you about that stuff. So trying to give them an edge with that. So we get to Saratoga That's one summer and I read an apprentice and it was another apprentice that everybody thought was the next big thing. And I'm going, I read's the one I could see it, the desire. That, and I told him the first day of the meet, I went just to talk to these two kids they were the only apprentices there. You have to understand that you're under a different microscope. You're both young kids, 18, 19, 20 years old. If you're out at 10 o'clock at night, just walking down Caroline Street, not drinking, not doing anything wrong, by the next morning, oh, I ran or was uh, out in Caroline Street, 3 in the morning, drunk. The story will change so much to the point. So you've got to understand you're under a different microscope. So you're here to be a race rider. Now, if you want to be a jockey, that's one thing anybody can be a jockey, get your name on a program. Oh, there's a jockey. You want to commit to something. You want to be good at it. You want to be a race rider. It's the difference between bacon and eggs. The chicken's involved, but the pig's committed. You got to make a decision. And I read embraced that. He says, ah, he, he totally got it. The the pig gives up his life for bacon and eggs. Chicken lays an egg and goes on. Right. The other kid looked at me and said, I don't, I don't understand. I don't care. What does that mean? And, And I read went on to do it. The other kid did, wasn't in New York in a month. So it, <laughs> yeah, it, you have to want races. it that bad. <laughs> yeah. Can yeah. yeah.
0: you imagine? Yeah. Man. It Now, did you, did you have a, did you have a stint where you went out a lot when you were, I mean, at Saratoga? I mean, maybe not, you know, whatever. When you're home, it's different. Saratoga feels like a little bit of a vacation. I would still would imagine. Did you get out a lot or, you know, dinner? What, what was your, what was your thing when you were riding? Yeah,
1: I, I used to love, there were a couple of really cool restaurants, uh, and Saratoga wasn't nearly as built up as it is now, um, but we'd go to dinner a couple nights a week, I, I loved the re- restaurant back in the day called Earth is Kitchen, and um, you know they like great grilled fish and salads and things, and it was just like a really, kind of the perfect way for me to eat, um, we used to go with Mr. Vanderbilt and Rick Violet, rest in peace, um, out to um, uh, Chez Pierre a lot. Special occasion, you'd go to wishing well was you know always it's a big deal, um, but yeah, honestly, I was always having to fight my weight so much, I, I, and I wasn't you know much of a party guy. I liked going out for dinner, getting to bed pretty early because I, I was always in such anticipation of getting to the track in the morning. Like I just really enjoyed that, especially up there. You know, listen, you want to hunker down January, February, stay in the house. I I, I can understand it, but. Saratoga, who doesn't want to be out early in the morning in Saratoga? It's the
0: best man. I mean I I've uh I I actually we uh I think maybe not this year but next year we had an idea we were gonna do like a morning show, like not not like a morning show, but like a Pete and I on a golf cart just rolling around with a camera. Just doing little pop up. Hey, what's you know? Look at that. Who's that? Do this, and then have some young kid edit it and release it every you know every week. I think that'd be. I mean, people would love it. It's just because it it's like the greatest, man. My son loves it. Um, I was flipping through pictures the other day, and uh, I made sure that I like emailed myself this one picture of my phone in case my phone dies or the cloud blows up. Where my uh, it was uh, we were on a golf cart, me and Austin, and he had a, a box of donuts. And Angel Cordero asked him to bring him a donut. And Austin walked over there and gave him the donut. And I just thought like, dude, you got no idea. That's like the coolest thing in the world. So, oh man, it's it, the mornings there are, are outstanding. So what? Yeah,
1: no, we're, and we're fortunate we get to go to these places.
0: Oh man, I, I yeah, I, I it's, you know, there's nothing like it. The backside anywhere is great. There's something about, there's something about the, just the pureness of it. There's, there's, there's these animals that the reason people are there are caring for these animals. That's why they're there. Yeah, of course there's motivations financially and there's all these other things, but they it's very pure in the fact that they're there and they're caring for these animals. Um, there's all walks of life back there. There's guys that are making less than minimum wage on the backside, not in New York or not anywhere that we know about, but <laughs> you know what I mean? There's people making less than yep. minimum wage and there's millionaires and they're, interacting with one another. And, um, and it's all because of the animal and I, it's just, I, I love it, man. And it's, it's, it's it just it, the smell, the, 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 the temperature is usually acceptable, even at Saratoga at that point in the, mo- uh, in the morning, it's, uh, the sounds, it's just, uh, it's, there's nothing like it. And it, it actually is the only thing helping me through whatever it is we're going through right now. It's, knowing that like that's on the horizon is like, is I'm fine. Lock me in here as long as you want, but don't take my Saratoga.
1: (laughs) Well, I think you said something very, very smart, um, profound. And the horse is a great equalizer. Um, like I said, I've, I've dined with Kings Titans of industry and grooms and I'm comfortable with anybody that has that same connection with the horses that, that I have and like I said some of my best friends to this day are the grooms that I grew up with in the barn um, I, you know we're just really really fortunate that these horses give us so much and, and, and I, I have to say this everything good in my life is because of horses now, I, I, obviously material things you know my little farm car you drive things like that but I met my wife through horses so therefore my kids everything good in my life is because of horses
0: all right, so we're we're getting we're we're getting on the back end of this thing, but there's I still got I got a couple I got to get out of you. So the first one I want to know is the mount that got away the the one that you you know you're injured you your jockey your agent messed up you messed up you did this you picked the wrong one the the mount that got away.
1: Well, I, I you know I guess if I got to say one, I mean, already showed when he won the Breeders' Cup Mile, breaking my leg a few days before that. That that was that was rough, you know, because. The year before, the Breeders' Cup was at Lone Star, and the day before I was heading to Texas, uh, a filly turned over in the gate with me, and she landed on me, and I broke my wrist, cracked a couple ribs, uh, small crack in my pelvis, and I flew to Texas to ride Artie Schiller anyway. Um, had a friend, or a doctor, shot my arm up with lidocaine, taped it up. I should have never rode. And I I just, I convinced myself I could do it. We had a horrible trip. Horrible, horrible trip. And, um, you know, maybe we had a horrible trip if I didn't get hurt. I can't say that. And if I do, it sounds like I'm making an excuse, and I'm never making an excuse. It the single biggest professional mistake I ever made in my life. Got back to New York, spent a couple of days in the hospital, went to the barn to see Jimmy, Jerkins, the trainer, and he was great. Couldn't have been more understanding, couldn't have been nice. But Mr. Entenmann was upset, rightfully so. Now, Mr. Entenmann had been very instrumental with me from early on in my career and actually had even seen me, he and his wife, because we used to have the pony races behind the old Entiman bake plant in Brentwood, Long Island, came out and saw me win pony races when I was a kid. And when I got inducted in the Long Island Sports Hall of Fame, he was the one who inducted me. So I have a long, deep relationship with the Entenmann family at that time. And he called me and he, he expressed how disappointed he was in me. And I made no excuses. I apologize. I say, I, again, biggest professional mistake I ever made. And he said, Well, you've always been a stand up guy and I appreciate you owning it, but you're off the horse. So I lose the mount and Edgar Prado picks him up. And he rides him at Keeneland the first time and, and he gets post one in the maker's mark. And he was a horse that had a very short but explosive run. If you stretched his run out, he would hang a little bit and lug in a little bit. His best go was in tight, in behind horses, climbing over them. And when the gap came, man, he'd give you an eighth and ten and change. So Edgar rode him that way that day because he was drawn one. But then when he realized, wow, how good a horse he is, the next three starts, he rode him a little bit safe, which was a natural inclination. And it stretched his run out. and He got beat a nose, a head, a neck. And I called Mr. Antheman and I said, Mr. Entheman, I, I know I made a huge mistake last fall and I, I regret it to this moment, but I know how to ride already better than anybody. And I really would love an opportunity to redeem myself. And he said, well, uh, you know, let me, I'll take it into consideration. So a couple days later, I'm walking by Jimmy's barn and he said, Hey, I don't know what you said to the old man, but you're back on the horse. One on him in Saratoga, ran a good second in the, uh, the, I forget what race, the Kelso. And I worked him that morning, and he worked unbelievable. And he loved the Belmont Park Turf Course, the Breeders' Cups at Belmont. I called my wife, because I used to leave right from working horses to go get ready to ride. I had to pull weight and stuff. So I called my wife, and I said, he's not going to get beat. He's doing unbelievable. He's never been better. His favorite turf course. And I go to the paddock for the first race, and I break my leg, and then he wins the Breeders' Cup. And, you know, it was just – it was – it was heartbreaking because I was like right on the cusp of getting full redemption and getting it back and, you know, from riding him hurt the year before. And when I broke my leg, I knew there was no way I could ride. I was laying in the grass, my leg bent backwards going, well, I'm done. And, you know, I was out seven months.
0: Oof. So that,
1: that's the one. If I had, if I had to say one, that, that one broke my heart a little bit. I mean, I was happy that he won for Jimmy and the Entenmann's and I love the horse, but, um, and, and, you know, it was a little bit of a bad deal too, because, I get a phone call, like, Saturday morning, Breeders' stuff Saturday morning, and I've always been a little bit preachy with my, my, my kids. Like, you know, everybody can be a good winner. You, know, you you show your character when you have to overcome adversity, when, when you know, things aren't easy. And so CBS, I think, one of, or NBC was doing the telecast, and they were like, would you come out and do an interview? And I'm like, hey, no way, I'm going to Belmont, you know, with my leg in a cast on crutches. Breeders' Cup day, you know, heartbroken, I can't ride, and I hung up. I I, I said no, and I hung up, and my wife kind of called me out. She said, you know, you're always, and my daughter wasn't born yet, you're always telling the boys, you know, about how to act a certain way and, you know, conduct yourself, and here you have an opportunity to show them what you're talking about and, you know, walk the walk instead of just talk the talk. I called them back and I agreed to do the interview more for example for my kids. So Joey came to the races with me, and Carmela dropped me off by the lobby. I'm on crutches, and it was just, it, it, it sucked. <laughs> so um, Joey was hanging out with the Clements, Christophe, and his son, Miguel, who Joey's friends with, and Valerie. And I did the interview in the paddock. And we finished it up and said, okay, I'm going to go watch this in the jockey's room and then get out of here. And they said, oh, no, no, we want to mic you up, and we want to have you on camera watching the race. Um, and I'm like, no, 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 I didn't agree. I agreed to do the interview. So I go down to the jockey's room, and I'm sitting there. Eddie Maple had retired. I'm sitting there with Eddie Maple, and Artie Schiller wins the Breeders' Cup. And Eddie, you know, he, he's just a dear friend, and he put his arm around me. He said, man, I'm sorry. And I said, hey, Eddie, you know, that's the game. I, you know, it happens to all of us. You, and as we're talking, Tom Hammond comes on the telecast as "Well, you got to really feel bad for Richie Migliori at, at this moment, losing this mount. Horse wins a two million dollar race. He was so discouraged, disgusted. He he left the races after the horse won. What? I'm I'm that's the last thing I did. I, I, you know. And again, I, there was a portion of me very happy for the connections and the horse. So I'm on my way up to the set on the third floor to. to See Tom Hammond, don't portray me that way. That's not what I did, you know. And as I was leaving the jockeys' room in the the corridor by the jock's room, here came Joey, and he was young and he started crying. He was upset because he, you know, he was invested in my career as well. And so I, I hugged him and I took him away from everybody and talked to him about it. And again, you know, this is when you find out who you are. When things go well and it's easy, everybody's a good winner. It's when you get knocked down. It's how you get up, you know. and try to talk him through it. I never did get to talk to Tom Hammond, but I was always upset about the way I was portrayed that day because it wasn't true.
0: Ugh. Yeah, I mean, god, it's that's that's tough. You know, and it's funny like I it's I I always I try to be careful what I say on TV cuz it matters, man. It's like people see it and like I don't want to make anybody feel bad. You know what I mean? And, it, and you know, it's even one of the reasons why I try not to I want to be able to watch the tape over and over again before I criticize a ride, Um, because I don't want to, you know, you know, I just don't want to react too quickly. So, um.
1: well, and it's difficult too, though, Jonathan, because we're we're in a moment that we have to present something. So it's it's a fine balance. You don't want to go overboard, like you said, until you've watched the replay enough to really get a a, a good handle on the race. But at the same time, it's our job to do that. So it's a tricky position to be in as well.
0: And the other thing is, is, you know, I mean, devil's advocate, you know, Tom might've been told by the producers that you refused to do the thing. And so he just thought you left. You know what I mean?
1: Well, I, absolutely. I, I think that's probably more what happened that because I know the producer too was a little bit put off that I wouldn't get mic'd up, but there was no way I was going to get put in that position. Like, it, it was, believe me, a big step to leave my house and go to Belmont and, and do that interview. But I did it more for my children than anything else. But I, I'm sure that's he, he was told that in his ear and he's just saying it, but I I just wish I would have gotten an opportunity to get the record straight that day. But you know what, at the end of the day, and, and uh, you know, I, I think I texted you something like this, just the most important thing is your family, your kids. They're okay. Yeah. Everything else works out.
0: Yeah. You got to hug Joe after that moment. And, and, and I'm sure it's a lesson that, that whether he remembers it uh, emphatically or not, it's, it's affected him and the way that he handles disappointment. Um, I'd imagine he was pretty disappointed when decorated invader, a horse he was very involved with, uh, didn't you know had that trip that he had in in the uh, in the Breeders' Cup. He,
1: he was. It took him a, a couple of weeks to get over it. You he, see, he's a lot like me in this respect. I mean, I you know I went to ride the Derby on a couple of horses. I mean, a few that had a, a chance, but never never anything that you would say I'm going to win the Kentucky Derby. Um, and when you go know, ride a hopeless long shot and by the time we got to the gate, I figured out a hundred ways I can win. There's a hundred scenarios, you know, this is going to set up this speed that, and then ultimately, and, and not just the derby, let's say bigger picture, you know, that it, when it doesn't work out, I had convinced myself by the time I got to the gate that I could win on this 50 to one shot, that I'd be depressed for two weeks, that it didn't happen. And and realistically, it wasn't going to happen. But I, I also think that it made me win races that, I might not have won if I didn't go in with the absolute belief. I mean, Desert Code wins the Breeders' Cup, $75. Friends Lake wins the Florida Derby, $76. uh, Student Council wins the Pacific Classic, $48. I went in believing in my heart of hearts, I'm going to win. And and obviously, most of the time it's not going to happen. But if you go out there thinking, I can't win, well, you've just diminished your chances to win.
0: Student Council, how did you pick that amount?
1: Well, it's a pretty interesting story, actually, because he had been he had run an allowance race in Saratoga. I was riding at Del Mar and I was riding a really nice horse for John Shero's called AP Excellence. And I'm supposed to ride AP Excellence in the um, Pacific Classic. So we get to Del Mar. It was the summer with the synthetic surface. And at Hollywood Park, which was a completely different synthetic surface, more like a dirt course, um, he would train unbelievable and run unbelievable. And I work him at Del Mar uh, week before the Pacific classic, he worked horrible, hates the track, just not handling it at all. So I come back to the barn. I told John that. And John goes, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I feel the same way, but we're going to take a shot and run him. He just got beat ahead by lava man in the Hollywood gold cup. So I walk out of the barn and here comes my agent, uh, Scotty McClellan. And he goes, uh, How'd that, how'd he go? I said, terrible. I said, he's not going to, he ain't going to get anything. He ain't going to beat a horse the way he handles this track. And he goes, really? He goes, well, I, this guy just called Ro Para um, wants you to ride this horse, Student Council in the Pacific Classic, says you rode a lot of winners for him in New York. And I said, well, I don't know that horse. I had no idea about who Student Council was. I said, but I know that AP Excellence isn't going to run me so we went back to John and John said, yeah, if you can get me Victor Espinosa, I'll let you off. So we called Tony Matos, The horse going to be three to one, three, four to one, right? In the million dollar race. Yeah, of course, I'll ride him. So we take the mount on student council. And again, not knowing the horse, just knowing that AP Excellence was any good on that surface. He was a good horse. So the night before the race, I'm handicapping the races on the deck at the house at Del Mar. And Joey looks over my shoulder, and Carmelo's sitting there, and I start looking at the race. He goes, "Dad, they took you off AP Excellence." I said, "No, no." I said, I, "I'm going to take a shot ride this horse." "You're crazy! You took off the winner of a million dollar race. He's lost speed. He's going to be loose." And he's really complaining that I I took off. He can't believe how dumb I am for taking off. To I mean, for taking off, but <laughs> AP Excellence. And as I'm as he's talking, and I'm talking to Carmela and him, and I'm looking at the race, I started seeing the race, Jonathan, like a like a a video in my mind. And I'm very visual. If I see something and it comes becomes that vivid, I could see it like a replay, like a like that streaming video. It happens. It's my whole life. It'll happen. If it, you know, it's, unfortunately, I don't see it that often like that. But and I started seeing the race, and I started saying, I'm going to be here on the first turn. I'm going to be there. I'll be following up. And I saw the race. Next day, we, I go to the races. Carmella's coming out with the kids. And Joey doesn't want to go to the races. She's mad that I took off the winner of the Pacific Classic. So she's like, you know, come on, your dad rides eight. You know, and, and I will say this is California I'm really good about giving jockeys' families boxes and, you know, taking care of them and stuff. So they got a nice box. So it's like five minutes to post. Carmella has a voucher, $100 voucher, she says, go put this to win on your dad's horse. And Joey's like, he took off the winner. Now you want to give the jocks mount back. You're crazy. You don't bet on the source. She says, Joe, when your father talks like that, he wins. Go put this $100 win. So Joey walks away and he'll tell you this himself. He was going to book the bet. He wasn't going to put it in because he's like, this, he was mad. So he winds up like a minute to post and puts the bet in through the voucher machine there and comes back. Horse wins it pays $48 he's in the winner's circle jumping up and down I, I just look down and I'm like that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Dad's dumb. Dad's <laughs> dumb and and it, I, I was wrong about one day AP excellence beat one horse
0: <laughs> oh man he was he was 18 when he did that by the way
1: <laughs> yeah yeah oh, he, he, it, it was funny and, and I tell you what that night was great um, Scotty McCollins were a, a party on the beach uh, Bert Bacharach came and sat with us at one point. He was making s'mores with my daughter, Gabrielle. And I'm like, this doesn't happen. Like, this doesn't happen. <laughs> you know? But it, it, it was, that, was, that was a pretty good day.
0: Oh, man, I just thought about that. Gabrielle's first spring at, at the University of Kentucky was absolutely ruined.
1: Yeah. You know, came home early, obviously. They closed up the campus. No no, Keeneland. Um, although she did get the experience a little bit last fall, which uh, – you know, got to keep a rein on but um yeah unfortunately but listen you know everybody's going through it and we all got to deal with it and you know god bless all the you know people on the front line all the medical uh, workers and first responders i mean it, it, it's just a crazy unprecedented time in our, our our lifetimes
0: all right so i've got i've got 3 left 3 3 but we we can't get all 3 in so i'm going to give you the 3 you pick the one you want to tell and then we'll just have to have you back to get the other ones. We'll have to just leave people hanging a little bit. And if you can do two, okay. you can keep them tight. We can, however you want to do it. We've got, okay. uh, you don't have to do too tight. I'm not in a rush. I just don't want to keep you too long. The first one is, uh, Jamaican railbirds, uh, chicken soup. And then, uh, <laughs> Jean Kruget of, of a late night hospital trip and spreading the guy's ashes at Belmont.
1: Oh man. <laughs> They're all good. You know, with, with, with all respect to my Jamaican brethren, we're, we'll skip that one. Okay. okay. Right. Because it, it, um, the, I was leading rider at Belmont. I get a call from John Lee, head in the press department. Really big racing fan passed away. One of his last wishes was for me to spread his ashes at Belmont Park. I was his favorite jockey. I said, okay, yeah, you, know, you can't say no to something like that, right? So I said, can the family come out like Tuesday morning? I've got to work horses. I don't have to get ready to ride afterwards. I can meet them like at the paddock and we can go out, spread the ashes. Okay. It's all set up 10 o'clock in the morning. I meet them in the paddock. I'm in boots and jeans because I worked a couple horses for John Kimmel and it's son and daughter. They're like in their forties, you know, and, and, uh, immediately the daughter starts crying hysterically just like loses it you know and, and you feel so awkward and inadequate because you don't know the people but obviously they're struggling and I'm so sorry for your loss and you know, nothing you could say is right you know and she says no no you don't understand this is all wrong you were supposed to be on a horse with silks on and do it from the back of a horse and I'm like what and the, and the, and the son's going no no it's fine let's just all work out and I'm and she's so distraught. I said, I got, I got to try to make this happen, right? So I, I call up John Kimble's barn. I said, can you have somebody bring the stable pony? This they had this crazy blue-eyed pony, um, Gizmo. I said, bring him to the paddock. I get security to open the jockey's room. I, you know, Ferns was one of his favorite horses. I put Harborview Farms colors on. I put the jockey gear on. I get on the pony. We're starting to ride up through the tunnel towards the main track, and the assistant track superintendent, Jerry Percelli goes, Hey, listen, just don't sprinkle that stuff on the, on the track. Try to, you know, like over the rail. So they all waiting by the winner's circle. They had some people with them. I ride the pony down almost to the 16th pole. I'd lean out of the saddle and meanwhile, they handed me a big sack. So when they said it was a big racing fan, he must've been a very large man. because so I had like 10, 15 pounds sack in, in front of me, ashes. So I start leaning over, and it's aluminum rail at Belmont, and it's not just ash, there's like some chunks in there. And as I'm leaning, the chunks start clinking off the rail, clink, 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 and the pony loses his mind. And he wheels to the right, and ashes are flying everywhere. He wheels to the left, ashes fly. flying, he goes straight up in the air, it's in my face, on my, in my ears, my mouth, my nose, my eyes. And by the time I get the pony to stop, I literally have like just a quarter of it left. The rest is on the pony, on me, on the track. <laughs> and I get, oh, crap. So I get off the pony. I tie him to the rail. I go under the rail. I go out to Ruffian's grave, sprinkle the rest of the ash around Ruffian's grave. And I'm doing the sign of the cross, but I'm, I'm actually wiping ash out of my eyes, my mouth, while I, like, name of the Father the Son, the Holy Spirit, you know, like, I come back. I get the pony, walk out. And they didn't really understand what happened. They're like, That was such a beautiful touch. You go in the Ruffian's grave and he loved Ruffian too. Oh my God, I couldn't wait to get in the shower I went down to the jockey's room took the stuff I was in the shower for an hour I, it was it was such a crazy experience oh and then they tried to hand me a thousand dollars cash for doing it I said no 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 this one's going on the ledger I get into heaven you give that to charity do whatever you want with it but no, I can't take money for that <laughs> oh
0: so that was my, my spreading
1: ashes story
0: goodness that is like nothing I've ever heard before oh my
1: yeah, god yeah that, that was that was an interesting one and then quickly the one with Kruget Um, he was on a horse in front, I'll leave some of the details out, and a bug boy went up inside of him, and Gene was a very rough rider, Um, and he tightened the bug boy up, and any one of us, like, would have either gotten all the way up in there, or gotten the heck out of there, because Gene was mercenary, and it was a year to the day that I'd broken my neck the first time, they did the Rescue 911 on it, I'd been out six months, and um, I'm back in the pack, and Gene, long story short, drops the kid. The kid goes down. Four of us go down. I'm the last one to hit the pile. I get sent out about 30 yards. And the first horse that fell, thankfully all the horses were okay, jumped up in a panic to run after the field, and she ran me over. Kicked me in the chest. I, I fractured my sternum. I bruised my heart. It was the only time in my life I actually consciously thought I was going to die. I couldn't breathe. and, and So I... A year to the day, I was in intensive care. I'm back in intensive care. Now, Gene wins the race by 20 lengths. They take him down. He had to come down. He dropped half the field. Carmelo's on the cot, intensive care. They got cart monitors, everything. About midnight, door opens up. Light spills in. In comes Gene Kruget, kind of waddles in. Richie, Richie. He's got the French accent. I'm so sorry. I don't mean to drop you. I only want to drop that stupid kid. Get out of here, Gene. Just get out of my room. <laughs> get out of your mind. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: Oh my gosh. What a life. So that's
1: some of the, some of the stories. We, we uh, You know what? Hopefully this summer we all get to hang out and we won't have, at least maybe we can get into a restaurant tomorrow. We got plenty more.
0: What a life. Richie I, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time I, I appreciate uh, our friendship I, I um, the you know you every time we talk you you go out of your way to ask me how my son is. Um, you were always so gracious to him um, and and, uh, and I, I think that's the the sign of true character it's it's not so much what you know not, not that I can do anything for you but what I can do for you but just really having interest in, in me and my life and and my family. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm very gracious for that. I'm very, very thankful and honored to call you a friend.
1: Well, I consider you a friend, Jonathan, and it's been great getting to know you and, uh, you know, good people are good people. It's just good to be around good people and you're a good person. So
0: well, I'll see you. Uh, I'll see you in a couple of months looking
1: forward to it i'm getting a little stir crazy hiking about 50 miles a week right now so i'm, I'm pretty fit but I, I need to get the the mental game going again
0: i'm gonna i'm gonna go with you one day one day when it's well maybe a couple days in saratoga I'm, i've i'm gonna go out and enjoy this world that uh we've been deprived of so i'll, I'll be out there on a hike with you at some point
1: i look forward to it. thank you for having
0: me all right richie something tells me that i'm not probably prepared for uh the amount of fitness that i'm going to need to be able to keep up with richie in some mountain in upstate new york uh on a dark day after i attacked it on a sunday night with uh adult beverages and ice cream and whoever whoever uh, who knows whatever else so but um, it's a goal of mine it'd be fun to get up there and, and roll with the mig um at least i know if something happens to me he could save me so that, that's always encouraging um, look, I, I want to thank, uh, Richie for spending the time. I, I, it was so much fun. Um, so much fun to, to hear those stories. But one of the things that always stands out to me, um, about MIG is he, it's, you can hear it in every story he tells in every conversation you have, he absolutely loves the game and he loves the horses and he loves what uh, the game and the horses have provided for him. And he, he respects that immensely. And, uh, And that's just so it's so uh, inspiring, really, to uh, to have a passion for something and and to allow that that thing, whatever it might be, to uh, to be your life and to build your life around that thing. And um, it's just a better way to live. Right. I mean, I've I've different parts of my life. I've had different passions and I I think it is an important part of life. And and Richie is a is the poster child for that. So um, what else? What else is there going on? Uh, I guess that's it. I I don't know who my guest is going to be next week. Um. Obviously, the the racing at Oaklawn is is a wrap for the moment. So, uh, I'm not expecting anything you know, jarring to happen this weekend that inspires me to find someone. But I've got some people in mind. Uh, maybe I'll go trainer next week. Uh, maybe uh, maybe owner. I haven't done owner yet. I, well, I mean Duke's a little bit of an owner, but uh, I think maybe maybe owner. I've got some ideas of of some stories of owners and uh sales and training and the one and this one and that one and I, I think i got a couple of ideas there so uh if you have any ideas feel free to tweet uh your ideas of people you'd like uh like to, sh- to hear on the show so uh you, you know just you know how twitter works You tweet me hey jk how about this one at so and so and uh we'll try to we'll try to get more going so look uh i uh i want to thank all of you for listening i want to thank uh ptf i guess cause i I think I have to just because, you know, he is my partner in crime. Gotta thank Drew, our business manager. If you have any questions, all are Drew. Um, uh, thank the other people on the network, Spencer, Naomi, Matt. Uh, Naomi's show last week did really well. She's got some fun guests this week as well. So looking forward to to getting her show off to a great start. And glad to have Spencer back in the mix and and Matty Ice. He's never slowed down. He's always making the magic happen. So if you haven't checked out those shows, be sure to do that. Um what else uh most of all i want to thank you guys for for listening for for two hours i I know it's a i know it's a long time but it's the point of it right i I think that in order to really capture the moment you 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 want to uh just allow the conversation to go where it is and not to feel time restraints i I think that can slow down the process of getting out a really good uh, piece of work so split it up if you have to Uh, some people listening to it in 1.5 i've heard that before which can make it go a little bit faster uh, also, you can just like exercise or something. It takes up some time, or if you're mowing your lawn, whatever. So, um, once again, thanks uh, for for listening and and uh, and uh, looking forward to some good news. We we keep hearing good news. Churchill's opening, uh, Santa Anita's opening. So, uh, we've got a little slower of a week. We'll, we'll just keep rolling with Gulfstream in Tampa, and next thing you know, we'll be back in business. Fingers crossed. I appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything? Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop to the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throast. To turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the end.